0: The Coco Nation Show is an unscripted live and interactive broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live
1: audience are their own and not necessarily those of the Coco Nation Show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds are encouraged and a sense of humor is recommended. Thank you for being a part of the Coco Nation.
2: Radio Shack?
0: Okay. What? The 80s called.
3: Welcome to the Coco Nation the world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins.
2: Hello,
4: everybody. Welcome to the Coco Nation Show, episode 349. Today, we have special guests, Glenn Dahlgren. And how's everybody doing today? I'm good. Very good. Doing Coco.
5: I'm good. Huh? Let's see.
4: We got a panel full today. Let's see. Not like that. Starting the upper
6: left hand corner, we got David Ladd. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. It's good to see everybody here. Thank you for joining us this great and wonderful day. You might want to turn your mic on and not
4: use uh, Ken's <laughs> or uh, Kevin's. Uh-oh.
1: I hope he's not <laughs> using my mic. He, that,
6: that means he's in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> my mic he's inside the basement.
7: You can't so. miss him in that optic yellow. <laughs> I was
6: going to say I had his phone huh?
4: Oh. <laughs> All right. Next over, yours truly, the button pusher.
8: And next up, Ron Delvo. Hi, I was wondering, Glenn, how much Mysterium can I put in my coffee? Mm. (laughs) All of it. (laughs) It's
9: a mystery.
8: And we got
4: (laughs) Brian, the Music Man, Shoebring. Welcome, everybody, to the Music
3: Man's Dungeon. On with the show.
4: Okay, and let's see. Disappearing from sight, we got Sloopy Malibu.
10: I guess it help if I turned on the mute. Greetings and sanitations, everyone, and welcome to the show.
4: Okay. And next over, character turn line feed. We got uh, Frederick Cigard.
9: Hello. How are you?
4: Okay. And then Coconut Bob. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show.
5: Gonna be building anything today? Um. He's in the I Don't have for- anything planned. I might. I might start up uh, another keyboard. Oh, okay. And got, got speaking of
4: keyboards, we got Rick
5: Euland.
0: <laughs> Where did you find all these people? <laughs> <laughs> and how did they get in? <laughs>
11: <laughs> okay. Then we got L. Curtis Boyle. Welcome to the show, everyone.
7: And Marco. Hey, y'all. Glad to be here.
4: Hey, we heard you. A
7: little
2: hot, and
4: but... Next up, we got Ken
1: Waters. <laughs> howdy, howdy, everybody. Hey. The shirt.
0: Also a little hot <laughs> <laughs>
4: uh, I kind of like warm here so I kind of like that purple one It's uh, red Well the one you had it on a couple of weeks ago <laughs> Let's see uh, Terry Steegee.
8: Hi everybody Terry.
4: welcome to the show
8: Terry's the and, Vader guy
4: Okay <laughs> then we got Retromac UK Hi guys welcome to the show And next over
12: Glenn Dahlgren. hey! Thank you so much for having me. Always always love to come on. Yo, dog,
2: you. <laughs> <laughs>
8: and let's see. Kevin
4: Holloway. Hello, everybody. All right. And the last row, we got Nick Morentes.
0: Welcome from the land down
8: under.
4: Aren't you right side up when the rest of us
1: are upside down?
8: <laughs> yeah, the planet's actually upside down. Don't I've always tomorrow. wondered, Nick,
1: what what exactly is uh, Australia down under?
8: That's a nickname, down under. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and the the
4: globes in your schools are they oriented where <laughs> Australia's <laughs> on the top of the globe and North America's on the bottom? <laughs> Did you guys be. invent underoos? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, now last but not least, we got Jason, Coco Booze.
3: Hello, everyone. It's Saturday, unless you're in Australia. And it's time to follow your fun compass right towards the Coco Nation, now featuring 50% more David Ladd. Where's your drink, man? <laughs> <sighs>
0: All
4: right, well, we managed to get through that set of introductions. Nice. All right, let's see. Today, Glenn, you've uh, got some things to show us today, don't you?
12: Wow, diving right in. That's never been the case. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) we got to keep moving. Sure, yeah. Yeah, So, um, coming
7: back four times.
12: Curtis uh, contacted me and asked me if I would enjoy diving into my my uh, archives and maybe pulling out some things that could uh, spark some conversation or give you a little insight into um, my history and Sundog's history. And uh, I said, sure, why not? What could it hurt? Turns out it could hurt me. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I went back there and I, it is, it is not meant for people to go back there. Um, things are heavy and they are under other things and there's no room to move anything to check. So um, a few well, many, bruises later, a <laughs> many bruises later, <laughs> many later, I came out and uh, I have some stuff. Now, I'm going to caveat all of this. I, ha- I get the sneaking suspicion this is going to feel a little like um, I'm forcing all of you to look at my vacation pictures um, because all of the stuff that I kept is stuff that is important to me. I don't know if it's going to be as important to you, but we'll mm-hmm. find out. Um, it's, you know, at least code co, uh, uh, related. Um, uh, and, and you'll see, I, I think some of it's actually really, really cool, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So, um, but give me a pass on some of the stuff that you don't find so interesting. What, like five drive cables or something? <laughs> six. <laughs> I have six oh, drive cables. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be interesting compared to what I'm about to show you. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to start off with sort of the. Uh, some of you are going to recognize a lot of this. I think, actually, um, part of the fun is going to be seeing how many things you recognize out of what I'm about to show you. So I found sort of my library. These are all the books that I used um, to make all of my games and everything. And so, and there's more reference here than I remember even having. Um, but I'm just going to show you some stuff. I don't know why I have this one chapter. Um, it's on disk structure. I have this. Um, 500 Peaks and Pokes. Uh, the, I think everyone used this.
11: Yeah, the William um, Barton one. Yep.
12: I have two. <laughs> I don't know why. And then I have this. It's Lawrence uh,
11: Chipolts. Yeah.
12: Yeah, and I have Edwin. the supplement, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then I have this. Yeah, uh, Spectral I Associates. Have this. Oh. And I have this. Nice. So, the awful- and then finally, I have this. So I used all of that stuff to to make my games. And uh, I wanted to see if any of them slipped your guys' view or if you knew them all.
11: I think I have almost all of them.
12: (laughs) (laughs) That's not surprising, honestly. Okay. I want to take you through a little journey as to how I got into programming. Um, I found stuff that I, I didn't remember that I had or that existed, but... Um, The first thing I did when I was starting to learn basic, um, I loved it so much and I didn't have a computer. And so I actually typed out my first program on a typewriter. I had no idea if it would work. Um, And and one day I actually went into a a department store and tried typing this into an Atari. I didn't get too far, but uh, that, that was my dedication. And this was called Beyond the Silver Pain. I actually did make that and it worked but it didn't go very far and then i have another one i can't i don't remember this one at all it's called dark star but i typed it out on a a typewriter as well it's all basic and that was kind of fun
11: and then quick quick question for you on that like i actually did the same thing of typing in basic programs but i was during typing class when i was supposed to be typing like home row or whatever and i
12: was wondering did you do the same or did you just do that just because you didn't have a computer I did it because I didn't have a computer. I wanted to to get it down, and I didn't want to write it out. And I, I I don't know. I guess. And I also I used the typewriter to to write stories. And so it was I was there in front of the typewriter. So you were an author even back then. Yeah, I mean, I have actually I uncovered tons of like early work that I had done that I'm not going to walk you through because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's too far. I think is that before you knew the
8: syntax was different on different computers?
12: Oh yeah, I had no idea. I was working off of a basic primer that yeah. you know, I don't know if uh, you know what it was specifically targeting, and I'm you know uh, so yeah, I, I don't know if it ever worked as typed. Um, I suspect it would not.
0: All right, we have so, similar. Go ahead. I was gonna say, we have similar backstories. I wrote a program on graph paper no, before I no. ever met a computer, and uh, yeah, interesting.
12: So, um, so I think the first real program that I thought was worthwhile considering was called Demon Cross, and I found the letter that I sent to Color Computer Magazine. It was for a contest of theirs. Um, and uh, it was an adventure game for a 32 K extended basic color computer. And, um, I thought I won, but I didn't. (laughs) Meaning I thought I won to this day, but I didn't. I actually, um, and it, and the color computer magazine was nice to explain it. Um, they said, we regret to inform you that your entry was not a winner. However, it was a near finalist, which means it would make a great adventure program. It will make a wonderful article. So they wanted to purchase it from me. And they did, um, and they they gave me an acceptance form and a check um, for like ten bucks, I think. I don't know, but uh, but that was when I started figuring out maybe I could make software and people might like it. Um, and then I wrote a game called Castle of the Creator, and for the life of me, I could not find it anywhere. I don't know if if it's out there, but but it's evidently I uh, entered it into a rainbow contest. <laughs> because it um was has ranked among the top 18 entries. I I don't
11: know yeah, that'd be yet. the adventure writing contest. I well, do you know which one it was the second first second um, third fourth? It was
12: October 29th, 1984 and it was the second annual adventure contest.
11: Oh okay, yeah, that's the one I placed in too then.
12: Oh nice. So you were in the same um uh, the same magazine as me I guess. Yeah, that would have oh, been December
11: 84, Rainbow, they announced the the people, the 18 that placed.
12: Your name and the name of your adventure will be listed in the December issue, along with some comments from the judges about your entry. I'm sure about mine placed higher. Uh. <laughs> I'm sure it did, too.
11: My game sucked. <laughs>
12: <laughs> <laughs> um, but evidently, after Castle Decreting, now they claim, which is a little shady, that they get, yeah, 10 bucks. I got 10 bucks for this one. Um, and as com- that serves as compensation and they took rights to it. Uh, so they had the right to publish our adventure um, in either Rainbow or any compilation. Um, but it did not give them the right to market their program as a separate entity, which, which means that I took it and I actually submitted it to um, Prickly Pear Software. And this is my first contract with Prickly Pear Software. I don't remember them ever hmm. selling this game. And I, I'm not surprised it was not really kind of up to the standards that I would think that you would want in a commercial title. But they, I signed a contract for them, and they they had the rights to sell it.
11: I know Prickly Pear had so much software they were selling that they never advertised it all in
12: Rainbow. Like you'd have to write for their catalog to get a complete list. That and is Spectral not And Spectral did this too. So no, that is not. Well, I, I would say they didn't advertise everything, um, but I don't know that they ever sold it. I don't. I think, and one of the things I'm getting to is. I have a Prickly Pear Software catalog, um, and you will not find. Um, okay. You will not find a Castle of the Creator in here. Um, I, I swear. I I think what I did was I I said that's great, but I'd rather do other things for you, and that's when I made a Hall of the King. Um, but before we get off of Castle of the Creator, I want to talk a little bit about um, where that came from. So Castle of the Creator was originally a D and D adventure. And I actually made that D D adventure into a tournament adventure that I ran in high school, and I have some of the some of the maps and things from that. So there's there's a map. I'm actually pretty proud of these, given I was you know in high school making these maps. These That's were kind of fun, and they
7: those are top rate. You could publish those.
12: <laughs> um, I think I actually tried. I sent, I might've done Hall of the Mountain King. I sent to TSR, try to get that published, not Castle the Creator. But this was really fun because we used it as a school district. We used it to battle another school district, like the top rated D&D school district in the area. (laughs) And so that was, that was fun that I got to run them through my adventure. Um, And then I have the, the contracts with, um, uh, with Prickly Pear for all the other ones that I did with them, including uh, Dragonblade, Darkmoor Hold, Hall of the King. Um, and I got to say, again, you know, having having that relationship with Prickly Pear, I've said this before, but they were awesome. I love Prickly Pear. Um, they were the reason that I was able to um, to make Sundog Systems pretty much because, you know, I had no risk. They were doing, I, I was I was helping them a lot. With um, with my software, and if they needed help on any other uh, the, other front, but um, they were just they were honest, they were upfront, and um, and I loved them. And when it came time to for me to go on my own, they not wanted nothing but success for me. To the point that they said, "Do you want our company?" Uh, I would I would buy their company because they actually bought it from somebody else. And I told them, no, I, you know, it's, I want to, I want to do something new. I want to do something fresh and, you know, something a little bit more edgy than prickly pear. I loved them. But, but even so they gave me their advertising rate, which is kind of amazing because, you know, advertising was kind of, did you make money or did you not make money in the cocoa? It's like how much was rainbow charging? And, uh, and because I got their advertising rate, which I believe was about, for a half page, maybe was like $450 a month and that I could do. And I can actually make money on that from my dorm room in my college. Um, So I have nothing but love and respect for prickly pear. Um, I uh, really, glad. what's that?
8: They were out in Arizona in Phoenix or I believe
12: so. Let me, well, let me find out. They were in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah. Okay. On Constantoga Avenue. Uh, did you all ever right. go to uh,
8: uh, uh, Rainbow Fest at all? <laughs> oh, yeah. There.
2: Okay.
12: <laughs> <laughs> I, yes. I went in 84 myself. Yes, I have some more stuff here uh, from Rainbow Fest. Um, this is a letter that I have on Dot Matrix that I sent to Tandy because for some reason I thought that I could sell my stuff through Tandy. And this letter is incredible. I mean, <laughs> let me let me show you how long this no. letter is. <laughs> it goes through all the reasons they should sell Warrior King in their catalog, including specific code uh, that I was really proud of in the uh, talking about you know, how I used memory uh, <laughs> inside that game. How you know how much time I spent making it, and uh, and I had a contact, and they never sold it.
11: I'm kind of curious. Mark Siegel was in charge of purchasing software for the Cocoa at Tandy during that time period. Is actually in the chat, so I'm wondering if he remembers this.
12: a <laughs> <Yeah, no> bum. <laughs> I'm sure I got filed.
11: <laughs> well, well it's right. a bit of a delay before we'll see the chat, but we'll see what he says.
12: <laughs> um, so just on some he of has these an notes, this pile, I have this, and I swear I think it's, the map for Paladin's legacy, and I don't remember if if the um, the author made it for me or if I made it, but or that if was kind of an Ultima style game, wasn't it? If I remember, it was yeah, it was an Ultima style game. Unlike Gates of Delirium, I don't think it was a direct rip off. Um, he, <laughs> he he actually made the the content himself, and then I have what I found I thought was just a, a joy to discover. Which is so I remember I mentioned Tom Mortel, and he and I were um making the copy protection scheme for Warrior King. And I found the handwritten notes. And if you look closely here, you'll see evil ideas. Uh Tom had a very um uh, he, he loved to mess with people. And so these ideas were all the things we were gonna do to you and your playing experience if we found out you had a a pirated version of the game. Oh, and so, you see, uh, oh, oh, can't boy. turn around, can't attack, um, <laughs> object equals death, joystick reversal, uh, pause equals worm, <laughs> wow. um, pallet shift, block map, uh, dick with vector, I'm not s- s- entirely sure what that means, IRQ <laughs> from hell, uh, C flash, um, E level and chance, I'm not sure what some of the stuff. RTS equals fade in, invincible bad guys, uh graphic mode from hell, the sound of silence, and never ending. is a never ending Sovum? I don't I'm not sure. But I mean we would get you into level 3 before doing some of this stuff. Uh so we we never oh,
0: did it Okay. Either. Yeah. Tease them on <laughs> <and> the, then...
12: <laughs> the brainstorm session was, you know, late night college all-nighter. We are going to dick with people and, uh, and have fun doing it.
11: That, that's a lot worse than computer wars, where if you, you you tried running something like Franchise or something, it would just suddenly rewrite the dire- directory and say, buy <laughs> your own all the way down the screen. <laughs> Mark me. Mark yeah, can you just I... zoom up? Glenn, since he's showing stuff, you don't need me on the screen for this.
2: Yeah, why are you am, there?
4: Hang
11: on, hang on. <laughs> You're up here. Got a couple <laughs> of okay. things going on. That, that's
12: cool. Here. Did you actually implement all those or was that just No, no, we implemented none of them. Oh, Okay. No, the thing we implemented was um something that was really straightforward and made sense, which is um I think the the copy protection scheme was that we wrote a whole track without sectors. And the um the disk drive would be able to read a certain amount of that, which was more than a sector, but then at the end it would start losing. It would it would the the, the data was unreliable. So we would we would read the whole track in, and that first part of the track would be critical data. It might've been graphics data. It might've been code. I don't remember. Um, and if you didn't have that, then the, the thing would just wouldn't work. Uh, so that was what we ended up with.
11: By the way, you got to do a response from Mark Segoe says, I'm glad I never saw that referring to the letter. So I guess it uh, <laughs> got turned away even before it got up to him.
12: It, that might've been the rough draft. I don't know. <laughs> I man. can't imagine
6: sending a huge dot matrix letter like that.
12: I mean, there's a forward to the letter. <laughs>
6: Glenn, did you ever get many people
8: contacting you, trying to ask you about this or that, or whether you know, or you know, anything about any of the programs that you made over the
12: years? Um, I don't know that I got a lot of you know sort of questions and answers from people. I got um, there were some people that reached out. I think most people wanted to like write for me at, for SunDog Systems, so I got a lot of uh, submissions. Um, They they thought you were
8: in a three-story building with secretaries and everything.
12: (laughs) uh, I think I told this story once before, but my cousin was a waitress in Seattle, and she – I don't know what led to this, but she was serving somebody, and they said – somehow I came up. I can't even imagine how that would happen. But she told them who I was, um, and they said – they recognized who I was. They knew Sundog Systems, and they said, why aren't you working for him? not understanding that I was <laughs> in my dorm room, you know, copying discs. So Did you ever yes, get I people think,
11: writing for your adventure games, like asking for tips and tricks? Because I don't think you ever made a hint book. I think Adventure I did. Survivors did I a bit. I did but... make a
12: hint book. Um, oh, you did a okay. hint book for uh, Star, uh, Inquest of the Star-Lord. It was a hint sheet. I don't know if I did that for the other ones. I, I don't believe I did. But, I mean, enough people wanted, wanted uh Tips there, and I think I gave a, a bundle deal at, at Rainbow Fest. If you, you can get them both, um, but uh, but yeah, I did that, and I it's possible, but I don't remember if people were asking for uh solutions to my adventures. So, were you, were you, you ever
8: involved in a uh, local uh color computer club at all? Probably y- not, yes, no,
12: <laughs> yes, yes, um,
13: Just I don't, I don't remember what
12: it was, Allegheny color computer club. I actually ran my own in my high school and I called it the fac. Um because it ended up being the I can't remember what it what it, it stood for, but it was color computer and then I not enough people showed up for the color computer so I started adding Commodore and other computers and so the C's started lining up. Um, and that was kind of fun, but the the Allegheny uh, color computer club was real. And uh, I went to a, a number of meetings. So uh, I never got that involved with them, but I enjoyed showing up occasionally.
11: Got a couple questions from the chat before we continue. Sure. So Mark Sig asking, do you remember who your RS contact was? Because it wasn't. Uh, him absolutely not. Okay. No, no. <laughs> and then Tricop 1974 says, uh, what did you use to build graphics, sound, and
12: music for your games? Um, I used, I want to say, uh, Coco Max uh, for my graphics. Um, sound, um, I can't remember the digitizer that I was using. Um, uh, so I basically, whatever was on the market, I would probably try. Um, and if it worked for me, then, then I used it. And then, um, like, you know, we, we use soundtracks occasionally to, to, uh, to test out some stuff and, um, some of the code from that might end up in another product. Uh, so and obviously you were using Phantasm later on for the assembler and stuff. From yes, us. and I actually have some interesting notes from that as well. <laughs> yeah, that's what you're looking forward to. Uh, so should I should I move on? Yep. This please incredibly continue. Incredibly fascinating walk down memory lane. Uh, so I found a few pamphlets, but so the first is my original Sundog Systems uh, <laughs> Sundog Systems catalog. Which I, I have that one yeah I'm hoping I sent it to everybody there's sundog systems I drew that picture and
5: let's see
11: yeah because this' is one thing like if you're going through that like you've got stuff that we originally sold through prickly pair you've got stuff that was originally sold through
12: Mark data products Et cetera, and then you kind of they were all and, okay and with Siguaro. you just pulling it all back yeah so own. I mean sooner or later those people either went out of business or I didn't want to do business with them anymore because uh, the Kelly kind of computer really kind of had two tiers, um, one of which was like prickly pear, you know, really above board. Everything was cool. They paid their 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 debts on in time. And that's why I modeled myself after. And then there were others that were not quite as um, I, I don't want to say they they didn't pay, but they certainly didn't pay on time. And so I figured it was And once I had my company, it was definitely better for me to um, to sell my stuff on my own. Um, so yes, I, I took back all the software that I possibly could to build up my back catalog, um, and I don't even know if Saguaro was like around at that time, um, and Mark Data. Mark Data probably was, but but as soon as when I <coughs> when I signed the contract with Mark Data, I was like, oh, Mark Data, I've made it. I mean, they're one of the the bigger companies. And then I saw the ad, and I saw and that they were going to use the same art for Shock Trooper. For my game. And I said, what the hell? They couldn't even make new art for my game. Uh, and, and I asked about that. And and whoever was there said, oh, it, it looks pretty close. You know, it's kind of the same sort of style and everything. Right. And I said, what? I said, something to the effect of what the hell. And he's like, hey, you know, listen, that's, that's what we got to do. And so then I knew I was not one of the top Mark Data products. I mean, Champion was one of my earlier games. And so I get it. But they were not going to be putting me and pushing my game as much as they were pushing other stuff. I was sort of in their their lower tier. So I figured, you know, screw that. I don't need to, to mess with that anymore. I'm going to just market myself. So uh, so the other pamphlets I have here, I have this from Cocoa Fish Chicago in 1992. That was the very first
11: know. Cocoa Fest, if
9: I remember
12: correctly. Yeah. I don't know if I went to it, honestly. I remember. It was run by Coco Pro. If it is the first one, David Nancy yes. Myers. Yes, yes, Coco Pro. There you go. Yeah. Um, and I had a, a good relationship with with Coco Pro, and they they made their bones selling used products, right?
11: Yeah, they resold yeah. a bunch of old stuff from a bunch of companies, including yours.
12: Right, and so and he got a lot of crap because of that. Um, a lot of people didn't appreciate him selling used products. And I, I never gave him crap. In fact, when I contacted him, he was prepared for me to give him crap. Um, and then we ended up uh, becoming friends. And, you know, I was I, I was all about supporting him. And I actually, I said, listen, I don't really have a problem with you selling it. What I have a problem with is if people are going to come back to me under warranty um, once that happens. And, uh, and I don't think anybody ever did. So I didn't have to worry about it. Um, but yeah, I, uh, he asked me to come to, to the, to sh- the Cocoa Fest a number of times, and I think I was just transitioning between going from college to my first job, and so I was, I was on board for it up until the last moment, and I realized I was going to miss my first day of work if I went to this thing, and so I didn't. So I, I feel sad that I didn't go, but I started my career, so that's not bad. So this is something I found from Rainbow Fest 89, I guess. And I'm thinking that I'm in here somewhere because I saved it. Uh, I'm definitely under the, yeah, so under the exhibits, there I am, Sundog Systems. Anybody else go to the uh, Somerset 89 Rainbow Fest?
11: I did not go to the Somerset. I only went to the Chicago ones, which is where I'd met you a few times back in the yeah. late 80s. So,
12: So they, I mean, did they do... How many actually? I didn't realize that this was not the Chicago one. Um, I went to Somerset and I went to Somerset because it was East Coast, but I, yes, I went to both.
11: Yeah, at one point, Rainbow was doing four different shows a year in four different cities. So,
12: wow, I don't so, need, I didn't even remember that.
11: That's kind of amazing. That would have been more early to mid 80s, though. Well, this was 89. Is that
12: what's that? Yeah, 89.
11: Yeah, that would have been the, one of the last Somersets then, and because basically after Rainbow Fest shut down and Cocoa Fest started up, we had two. We had Cocoa Fest in Chicago and we had uh, the Atlanta Cocoa Fest um, right, Um run by different people. And that was that was pretty well, I think.
12: Right. All right. Ready to move on to a different uh, pile? Yep. All right. So this pile is all of the various magazines that I kept for some reason or another. I have a feeling that. I'm in them at some point. Uh, I don't know why else I also would have kept them, but just the different, I didn't realize how many different magazines there were for the con computer at one, at one point. So this was anybody remember micro news. I don't even remember what it I is. I really. don't
11: remember that one.
12: There's a big head on the back. Uh, United Co- computer Federation. Um, and it's got, I mean, it's got this, it's, it's, it's a, Looks like a fairly homespun thing, but I don't know. I thought maybe someone might organize it. Um, dynamic color news. That one I do remember. Ah, I, I maybe I'm in here. I don't know. I have to imagine I am.
11: At least Save, a review
12: or something, yeah. Save the maiden. Um,
11: yeah. Okay. So dynamic color news. Those are all scanned and on the archive. I will mention that.
12: Ah. Okay. Uh, Glenn's High Color Computer Club. Yep. Coco one two three. Coco Clipboard Magazine. Yep, I remember that one. Yeah, and I have I have uh, two of those. I don't know why. <laughs> um, the Wizard's Castle. You remember that?
11: Oh, faintly. I never had that one, but I remember seeing it. December
12: 1987. Uh, I got to be in here somewhere. I don't know. Was that one of the
11: adventure uh, game based ones? Like I know those adventure survivors was have their own newsletter that they published, and they sometimes it well, walked through. Sponsored and,
12: by the Carolina Coconuts Club, um, and it is uh, sub columns for questions for the wizard and pencil pals, uh, wizard's castle scoreboard. So all kinds of games there. Uh, I, programmer, I, I don't know. It's hard, software reviews and hardware reviews. So I don't think it's just about adventures. Okay. Dynamic Color News. Yep. Anybody remember that? I do. That one's on the archive as well. Okay. Very good. Uh, I'm not sure why I have this. Kelly News.
11: Oh, Kelly Software Distributors. That was the Canadian distributor of just about everything Coco. They were based on mm-hmm. Edmonton, Alberta.
12: Yeah, I have no idea. Maybe this is what I was trying to use to get my, uh, my game in there. Uh, Gamers Connection.
11: I do remember it. I didn't subscribe to that one to myself. But I remember seeing it at Cocoa Fest.
12: So that is me. Um, I, this was, I remember working with this guy and actually I wrote a column for this one. And my column was, um, so you want to be a master. And I talked about uh, how do you start programming for the color computer? How do you make games and all that? I was, uh, I was really into it, but they, they had this art made just for my column and that was that's why I kept it. Volume one, issue two. So, Gamers Connection. I was I was all in on that one.
11: Cool. Do you remember who was in charge of that one? There.
12: Uh, let me see if I can find out. Uh, Mark. That'd be a good Kaiser. interview to get. What's that? That would be a good interview to get if we yeah. figure out who did it. So, the editor publisher is Mark Kaiser.
11: Mark Kaiser. Okay, I don't recognize the name.
12: I even remember this this uh, piece of art. I think maybe. The person who did this art was the same one who did the covers. Oh, there there I am. Um, the, the covers for the, uh, for prickly pair software. Uh, and there's, so you want to be master. And that's the picture I ended up using for um, Double Duck. And I wrote it at like a story. I wrote the first part like a story. And then I would sort of translate that story into uh, what you need to do. And in this particular, uh, section, I tell you all the books you need, which is pretty much that, that pile of books.
9: Okay,
2: cool.
12: And then of course we have rainbow magazine and it's a good place to see the inside front cover. And I'm sure that's why I kept it. Well, actually the reason I kept these, I wish I had, I know I have it somewhere, but I, I haven't. I had an article in Rainbow. It was for Invisalist. It was a way to take a basic program and use machine language to scramble it uh, so that nobody could read it, and then it would unscramble it and execute it in memory. Um, and uh, it was a, it was you know sort of a little copy protection kind of thing. Um, but I'm sure I, I saved these because they have reviews of some of our games, probably something that I've written. So, though that's my magazine collection. Yay. <laughs> I figure you guys are the only ones who would possibly find that interesting. No, it's cool. All some right. of those newsletters mm-hmm. I've never seen before. So, yeah, well, that's kind of why I brought it up. I figured I, I kind of wanted to see if there was a you know, quiz you on which ones you knew about. All right, so um, now I have uh, some art from some of the games. I mean, it's mostly art for promoting the games. So I have like. Like this was the actual, you know, mock up for uh, one of the ads, which turned into this. Um, I think this was the first one I did when I was um, working for Legend, a new for 91. That's when I started. And it's when I came off of the front cover because Lonnie wanted to rack, to to jack my rates up. And so I, I finally said no. I can't do it anymore. This was the, one of the original um, color proofs. I actually have the film. So back then you, if you wanted a four color uh, ad, you had to make four films um, and they would combine them Yeah. Yeah. And I have them and I have, I can't imagine that they are interested to look at. Um, So I'm not going to bother showing them to you. This was one of the designs I had at a rainbow fest. OK, uh, yeah, that's that's uh, I'm sure that's really interesting. OK. And so here's some of the stuff from the um, picture that I sh- they shared. So so this was uh, the original art for Sinistar. And so there's a, an interesting story behind the artist who made these for me um, back in. Uh, in fact, I'll start there back in um, Pittsburgh, where I was growing up, I was in not even in high school I must have been in. <laughs> must've been in like um, middle school, whatever the junior high, I think it was. Um, I, we were making an RPG, um, a tabletop RPG called in question, actually it was called Star Lord. And then I found out that this, there was a third rate Marvel character also named Star Lord that nobody knew about, but I figured <laughs> I might as well, not just, you know, attract attention myself. So I ended up calling it in Quest to Star Lord, but I found a guy living literally down the street from me, um, who happened to be an artist. I had no idea how I found him, Um, but he was just a guy and he drew and he charged me $50 a picture. And so he drew this for us for the cover of that tabletop RPG. Um, You can see it says Star Lord. I actually did the font for it. I was really into doing that kind of font at the time, Um, but we ended up putting in quest of over it, but for 50 bucks, that's not bad. For, especially for a kid, that's something that I could I could pull together, and that became the the inked version. This is the pencil version. The inked version of this became the cover for Inquest of the Star Lord, the the Coco game, and uh, I kept going back to him um, to do all the covers for uh, for our titles. So this was Kium guy, and because he was so cheap, I you know I was like, is this is, this, is that a girl in there? Because that doesn't look like the main character from my game. He's like, yeah, I think think it was a girl. I said, oh, "All right, whatever. I guess I'll use that." <laughs> so, um, I think these are films. The last, okay. Glenn, thing to did show... he do your, did he do your sun dog logo? Yes, and that is, I'm about to show you something along those lines. Hey, Glenn, so, that's trendy. Have,
7: that... Having a gr- having a girl as your protagonist that's that's trendy.
12: Actually, I have a girl as my protagonist in my latest book. i am talking I'm talking about that. Um, so I went to him and I said, once I figured out that I wanted to call the thing Sundog systems, cause it was, you know, rainbow, it was color. It was, um, I liked it. And so I asked him to create a logo and he gave me, and I found sort of the, the first cut ideas for those logos. And I wanted to show them to you. These are the first cut logos for Sundog systems.
11: Oh, cool. I like one in the middle too. <clears throat>
12: yeah. And I looked at that one. I'm like, I'm scared of that. <laughs> I, that's not who I want to be that is not the, the image I want um, to I want to portray to my customers you. yeah you have a much <laughs> fin- much friendlier dog in your actual animated logo yeah, on I, the games themselves I, once he showed that to me I was like listen I want to incorporate this, the rainbow I want it to be friendly and yeah we ended up coming up with, with this one which I so much preferred I I love this this logo it turned out really well but I wanted to show you the scary one uh, <laughs> that you came up with um, and I think the last thing, which is, should not be the, the the closer, is this. It's a Sundog Systems wristwatch, which I have no idea. I did not remember making it, and then I remembered, yeah, I think I had that. But I also had a bunch of other merch, like hats and, and some other stuff, maybe some posters. I don't remember. But this is the one I found, so this is what you get to see. <laughs> I don't remember the watches. I do remember the hats because, I mean, Dicom yeah. and a few others were selling
11: hats, too. So. The
12: hats were everywhere. I gave those out at at um, Rainbow Fest, I believe. And I don't remember why I made this watch. I'm sure it doesn't work. I don't know if it ever did. <laughs> uh, but it's fun that it exists, and you guys get to see it. Cool. So that's my walk through memory lane. And there's a bunch of other stuff that I discovered about, like, my early days as an author and, and things like that that I'm not going to go into. I actually found a copy, the first printed copy of The Child of Chaos that's kind of amazing in that nothing in that copy actually ended up in the final book. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm going to pause there and take a breath. You guys, is there anything you want to talk about before I launch into book-related stuff? Is there any mentioned. other questions in the chat there, Mark? I didn't get a chance to keep up.
7: Yeah, uh, Tricob 1974 asked uh, Glenn, what inspired the Sundog System name? Or did you answer that? I didn't
12: Yeah, so I was trying like hell to come up with a, a name for the, the, <laughs> the, the company. So, something I, that I, stood out. I, right. Well, I wanted something that was colorful. Um, something that you know and people had all taken spectral and rainbow and, and all of that. And so I think I just I took a thesaurus and I looked up rainbow. And that was one of the things, and so I, <laughs> I looked up what it was, and it wasn't a rainbow, but it was an atmospheric effect. But it Was the sun was, related? Yeah, that was sun related, <laughs> and uh, and the only thing that had used Sundog, I think, was a game. It was a it was a science fiction game for the PC, and so and Sundog. There were a number of other companies that had systems at the at the end of it, and that made it sound kind of a little bit more weighty. Even though I was just doing games, I could have called it Sundog Games, and but I uh, but. I mean, we did eventually do soundtracks and uh, and graphics press. So I wanted something that gave me some flexibility. And so systems just seemed to roll off the tongue. And so once I had that name, that's when I came up with the logo. And I think I I think I nailed it. I I really love that corporate identity uh for my studio. And just out of curiosity,
11: I think you're fairly far south now, but when you're back in Pixar, did you ever get a chance to actually see real sun dogs? Like we see them up here all the time in the winter. Um I just the one picture that somebody posted recently. Oh Brian, uh, yeah, Brian Weasler posted one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I
6: like, I Brian, don't, your marketing is getting out of hand, man. <laughs> <laughs> I am pumping all
12: kinds of money into this guy. <laughs> uh so I, I you know it's very possible I might have seen one at some point, but
11: because if you no. get in a really extreme one, really bright, I've actually seen one with five, like you get the main oh my sun, goodness. And two on each side, but on the extreme ones, it actually looks like you're on an alien planet with three suns in the sky. It's a pretty cool effect.
12: That's uh, that's awesome.
11: I'd love to have a picture of that. The fainter ones kind of look like little round rainbows, basically. You know, do the ice crystals.
12: Yeah. So the more awesome the better. That's the that's the uh, that's our company's slogan. <laughs>
11: <laughs> Any questions out? from the panel for Glenn too? Before we continue on and, and talk about his new book
8: and the final chapter of the series. You mentioned you were in, at Cocoa Fest or uh, Rainbow Fest, I should say, the right. first in the first realm. Did uh, did you actually have a booth set up? Did you have a you know oh, yeah. sign up and um, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, who 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 were you impressed with? Um, you know that you met at the show.
12: Ah, uh, yeah. So I'm I probably talked about this in previous uh, visits here, but. Uh, my first Rainbow Fest was the most amazing visit ever. Um, I got to meet my my icons and I created relationships that that stuck with me forever. Um, I remember um, meeting both uh, Steve Bjork and Dave Dyes on that trip. And uh, and I think um, I think both he and his wife to be were dressed up in next gen costumes. Yep. Yeah, that Monique. Was, yep. That was pretty cool. Um, but I ended up going to lunch with both of them because I think they knew each other. And so we went out to lunch and I remember walking back from the mall where we had lunch and I found a $20 bill on the, on the ground. I'm like, this is like the best weekend ever. (laughs) There's just nothing that can go wrong this trip.
11: (laughs) This is that Woodfield mall across the street from hotel, right? You're talking about,
12: (laughs) man, you retain those facts way better than I do. (laughs) I just remember that it was a mall and I think we had lunch. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I got to know Steve, um, and I got to know Dave and those are the people that, that really impressed me on that trip. And in fact, that relationship with Dave ended up going, you know, far into the, into the future. It affected a lot of what happened to my company. Um, uh, I mean, he ended up writing a, um, a game for me, uh, for Sundog. Uh, we ended up selling some of uh, Dicom stuff when he stopped being through Rainbow and that whole, the whole fiasco with Lonnie and Rainbow, I, I definitely have gone through, the uh all the intricacies of that controversy here. Um but but uh uh I really I really enjoyed that environment. I really enjoyed the people and it it started me on I mean I was always like uh, an entrepreneur. I would set up a little store at the end of my driveway called Egg Shack where I would sell stuff. That's I when I was a little kid. Um that's I love doing that kind of stuff. And so being able to go to a a conference like that, where I had a booth, I was able to sell my stuff. Um, I, I was in heaven. I love that kind of thing. And I do that now. Actually, I do that almost every weekend now because I do live signings for my book. And so I'm selling myself and uh, let nobody tell you it's not really about the book that you're selling. You are selling yourself. Um, And so I'm them the whole story behind not only what this book is about, but how it came to be my, my, uh, um, my story about uh, Piers Anthony um, talking about, you know, how uh, the awards talking about how it could potentially become a TV show or movie. And at the end, m- I would say most people, majority of the people actually buy either the book or the series. So I'm having a lot of fun with that too.
11: Yeah. I, I want to thank you again for uh, being our guest interviewer uh, when Dave dies came on too, because you guys had such a good history. There was, Stuff you asked him, I would never have thought of him in a million years, even though I did know him fairly well at the
5: beginning. But
12: and that yeah, that was that was fantastic. I don't keep up with I don't keep in contact with Dave. I used to a lot more, even after the, the cocoa thing was um you know no longer really relevant for us. Um but uh uh but he's a good guy. I I, I was glad to have that opportunity.
11: Yeah, yeah, that was great. So, any so, any further questions on the cocoa side of things before we get into books from the panel or from the chat? Going once, going twice. You can even see my
12: uh, my ad. Oh yeah, here the full <laughs> color <laughs> version <laughs> of the Sundog ad. That's,
11: yeah, that's right. With Sinister in the upper left corner, it looks like. I mean, I, I gotta so.
0: say, with with the inside front color cover of Rainbow, I never thought of Sundog as some dude. <laughs> <laughs> You, you going- had secretaries, you had, you know,
12: staff. <laughs> yep, some dude. I think that was almost every cocoa company at that point. It was just, you know, some dude or some dudes. Um, very few were, uh, you know, I think uh, it was really weird. I went to, at my campus, um, I found, remember Zebra? Systems? Yep. Yeah. yeah. cocoa company, yeah. Yeah, so they they were on a sort of a different level. You know, uh, they had a, they had a, an office, they were hiring like people, uh, students and they were making software and they were, they were doing stuff. You know, they had, they seemed to actually have like, you know, money coming in and out. So I was really impressed with their organization and I thought it was really fun that they were right in happy Valley, right at Penn state. Um, so I could go in and, and chat with them. Um, and so, so, you know, Apart from maybe some of the the bigger places, um, and I don't even know how many there were, it was mostly you know guys and like Gimme Soft. You remember Gimme Soft? That was two guys, yep. and uh, I I love those guys. We we always when we went to Rainbow Fest, he he's the one who built my big display and um, the the uh, you know that big red display where I I the pegboard and everything. He built yep. that for me. He's he was he was awesome. I loved him. Did you have a little bit of
8: a learning curve um, when you used Cocoa Max to to do stuff? I mean, because you have to be able to make it and and manipulate it, I guess, to use it in whatever art you used, right? You had to
12: print it out.
11: Plus, the mouse-driven programs were pretty new when you first started your Cocoa 1 and 2 stuff, too. So, I mean, that was not too long after the Mac.
12: I mean, I'm sure there was, but I'm sure it was so much better than the way I was making graphics before that. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, honestly, I, graph I, paper I and poke. <laughs> yeah. I did. I, I'm early on, I was doing graph paper and then, you know, I even did some draws, you know, to try to, 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 uh, not use up a whole, uh, as much memory. Um, but, uh, I can't even remember how I made graphics before those programs. And after that, it was, just it was a lot easier. I don't think I had any other, any other real experience with, um, co- graphics programs before Coco Max. Um, but I was in Penn State for um, comp sci, and so it's possible, but it, but it really wasn't that wasn't my focus, and they didn't have a lot of opportunity for that. But they did they had mice, and they had some some other programs that might have been similar. I don't know. I, I just remember it was a godsend. Thank God someone made that for the yeah. color computer because it helped everybody.
11: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quick, quick question, question uh, kind of related along that lines like you found the guy down the street who was actually doing artwork for your covers and stuff did you ever consider using him to do computer graphics for some of your stuff especially later Coke with 3 when you had a lot more colors and stuff to fiddle with or was that no, more of what you wanted to do yourself?
12: He was not that kind of guy. And yes, it's uh <laughs> it's something that that I would definitely do myself. I I had enough um uh, talent in that that direction that I could make graphics for myself and I I didn't I never even considered it. But I didn't. I did want someone to make something that better than what I could make for the covers, um, and that's true uh, for my books as well. <laughs> there <laughs> we go. Never, Segway. Yes, I would never want to make my own cover, um, and I ended up finding a studio in Ukraine that was awesome. That um, it gave me, you know, exactly what I wanted, and I have never heard a word of complaint uh, about these covers, which is great because that's th- your first impression of the books.
7: Yeah.
12: and uh, and I will show you as well. I think I showed, I gave you the the sneak peek last time, but this is the cover for the new. Oh, it's really bright there. Uh, re- cover for the new book, The Realm of Gods. And I'm, I'll just talk a little bit about it. Um, I just finished it last night, meaning I got all the edits back from my editor, who is her name is uh, Samantha Cook or Skookie in the UK. She is amazing. Um, I've never found someone that I work so well with together. I worked with a bunch of editors when I was with a, a small publisher, small press, and the first one they gave me actually added errors into my manuscript. <laughs> and so I had to I had to explain I get and not just errors, but like categories of errors. So I had to list all the categories of errors. I send them back to the the press and I said, listen, this person that you have editing my work is worse than worthless. Um, I need to have somebody else. And so they gave me somebody else. And that person I ended up working with um, for the first book uh, and then a little bit uh, in the future. She was great, but she wasn't what I needed. Um, she, she helped me like with, uh, you know, making sure she was a a really good line editor, good proofreader, but what I needed was someone to give me feedback on the book that, um, I couldn't see, and I couldn't see from outside of my own perspective. And she, I, I found her because she did a review of my first book, um, Child of Chaos, and she loved it, but she had some very specific criticisms. And I find myself, you know, a lot of the time you look at you see this criticism being like, okay, well, it just didn't match up with your taste. But I found myself agreeing with her. I'm like, I would really have liked to have known these things before I had finished the book. And so I um, we had already been in contact. That's I I gave her the book and she let me know that she was an editor. And so then we were off and running and she has edited my books ever since. And she gives me she's she's great because she has a really good overall view of the series, not just the book, but she gives me, uh, she can look at this thing and say, here's where you're weak and here's where you're strong. And both of those things are really important for me to know, Um, partially because I'm a creative and everybody, you can't just criticize a creative, otherwise they just wither and die. So (laughs) I need to know, you know, both the good and the bad, but she'll go through and give me a developmental report and she'll let me know the major issues that I need to shore up. And then she goes through the actual um, manuscript, um, provides a lot of um, suggestions and changes, but then comments. And her comments are great because they're, they're reflective of, you know, not just, oh, this, I think this needs to be changed for this reason. But it's like she's letting me know how she's feeling through the read. And so I get lots of oh no's and you know what's gonna happen and here's what <laughs> I think is gonna happen. And and on this, and she does two reads and on the second read and she says, second read, yes, I found out this is exactly what happens. Um, but what I find, <laughs> I find this funny. Um, I don't know if anybody else will, but when I, I'm going through and I'm making big uh changes based on her developmental report, and then I'll go through and, and read all of her comments, and it's like we're having a conversation. It's like she's speaking to me about the book as I'm editing the book. And a lot of the times she'll be remarking on something that I've already changed. And I'll be like, no, it's not like that at all. I don't know what you're talking about. It's completely fixed. Why are you telling me this? <laughs> of course, you know, it wasn't that way when she wrote the comment. But in that moment, I'm right. <laughs> yeah. and I have I've fixed the problem. I can just say resolve. And I feel really good about that. So it's just it's a fun dynamic for me.
11: Now, you mentioned that she's, she's kind of like knows the whole plot. Did you give her like a rough plot outline of the no. final book even before or she just picks it up as you go?
12: Yeah, she picks it up as a reader. And I, I okay. would never spoil that for her because she's reading it, no, not knowing what's going to happen. And that's kind of important. Um, but my point is she has read the series. She's edited the series. I couldn't really go to another editor on my final book and say and expect them to understand. I mean, this, especially on this book, it is the finale. It is the culmination of everything that has come before it. And I don't know how, I don't know about other people, but I leave nothing on the table for this book. I answer all the questions and, uh, and there's no way another editor could, could handle that or that their, their feedback would be better than, you know, a line editor. Um, so I was really happy to, uh, to, to get her feedback on that. And the book is much better. And yesterday Yesterday I finished the last comment I formatted it and I sent out the arcs uh, which means that all the people that have signed up for free copies of the book so that they can leave a review on day 1 on the uh, the launch day they now actually have copies of this book and so and hopefully they will tell me if I missed anything and uh, I already found out one thing I missed which is great because I want to get rid of all that stuff before it launches on the 27th of February which is this month
11: now, is, is the launch going to be the electronic book launch only at first, or is this the physical launch as well?
12: Well, the, the idea is that it's both. Um, so what I'm hoping is I actually have signings around that time. I have one on the 24th. I don't think I'm going to have the physical copy of the books by then. Um, although by finishing it off, finishing the manuscript off yesterday, I'm kind of hoping that I will. Um, and uh, and so I I need to get the um, the physical book ready for that date. And then have it shipped to me in order so that I can actually have a launch day where I'm releasing the book. Um, and I it takes about two weeks to get those books. So I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to make it um to have those. But on Amazon, um, if you order the the physical book on Amazon, it'll ship that day because I will make sure that I have the manuscript all on ready that, but I do not suggest that because you want a signed copy and you want to get it from me. <laughs>
8: Glenn, how, how um, dissimilar is creating software and, you know, uh, and having a theme through it and these books? And I guess another question that links to it is, um, will this ever translate to a, you know, a PC game of some kind?
12: or? So um, the actual, the act of programming a game and writing a book, I don't think is very similar at all. Um the act of designing a game and writing a book is very similar, at least, you know, I think that's why I, I take to it so well. I love sort of working, walking down the paths, figuring out what the logical route is, figuring out the twist that I can put there. And in design and game design, the um, the truism is always, does this solution solve more problems than it causes? And if, and if it's true, then you go down that path. And that same is, pretty much true of of plotting things out in a book and uh and and specifically for me because i am a game designer i don't know if any of you have read uh, game of war um which is the 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 prequel the effectively the first book in in the series but the game of war is an actual game and it has rules and it has uh it, it plays it plays out um i designed that game because i'm a game designer and then the fun of playing that game in the book is figuring out how the hero subverts the rules in order to, to uh to come out victorious. And it's I think it's one of the strongest parts of the book because I bring that sort of sensibility to my writing, and especially in the end of the finale, there's a couple of sections there that I actually I definitely approached as a game designer. Um, and I really and, and my editor said, you know, okay, so watch these things about how you're describing these to make sure that they're approachable for everybody, but the, this is one of the sort of unique elements of your books, and you definitely want to, want to focus on them. So people who either know I'm a game designer or just enjoy that kind of thing will find those elements really fun in the finale.
11: Now, now I know when we talked to you previously on, on one of your previous books, you were mentioning that you were actually getting some interest on either, you know, as you mentioned earlier, either a movie or a TV adaptation. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, on the writing of this final book, were you kind of taking that into consideration trying to make scenes that would translate well to screen or did you just write it as a book and not worry about it?
12: So I I think I tend to do that anyway. Uh, I want there to be really visually interesting scenes. Um, one person, I'm not going to say who, who they are. Um, uh, he told me that he would um, take a book, take one of my audio books, and then just get lit and listen to the audio books and watch the movie play out in front of him. Uh, so, <laughs> so he's, enjoying the mind. Movie. he's enjoying the movie before anybody else. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I, that's the way that I write generally. Um, was I thinking about the possibility of a movie when I wrote a conclusion for the series? You know, yes. Uh, in that I think if, um, this particular book makes the other books way more relevant um, one of the things that my editor told me, uh, in reading this book is she was, she says it's her favorite book, by the way. And it makes the, um, it ties together all of the elements of the world in a way that enhances everything. Um, I, as I said, I, I left nothing on the table. I explain the origin of the gods. I explain how the gifts were created. Um, I explain the the relationship between order and chaos, all of that stuff comes out and it's really amazing. I think people will read this book and go, did you know all of this stuff before you ever started the series? And of course the answer is no, I did not. Uh, In fact, I didn't know that it was gonna be a series. When I wrote the first book, I (laughs) thought it was going to be a a standalone. Uh, And that's why I blow up the world at the end of the, the first book. But then I figured out there's something in there that I can use to leverage to continue on. And that thing, that I that enabled me to write the next book enabled me to write everything, um, and so I'm really proud of this book. I think I think no what if it, someone gets to the end of this book they'll be like why isn't there already a movie or a series? And so, <laughs> well that that brings up another question like you you mentioned that you originally the first book
11: was meant to be a standalone, mm-hmm. and I know some other authors that have done that too where they've they've written a book not expecting it to be a series and then like you they have some revelation that it's you know this definitely can be a series. And they generally tend to then kind of do a rough plot of the rest of the series because they've kind of got this whole background. Did you do the same thing or were you still going book to book to book, figuring out everything as you went?
12: Yeah, I I was still kind of going book to book to book. Um, I mean, the first. so when I had this book, I was like, I need a um, reader magnet. When I had Child of Chaos, I need a reader magnet to get people into it. And my my publisher at the time um, was going to do a box set of like novellas. And so I figured, okay, I'll write a novella uh, or a short story or, or a novella for that book. And then I'll eventually use that as a reader magnet to get people into child chaos, never assuming that there would necessarily be a, a sequel. That novella became Game of War. Um, I no longer had a relationship with that press. And so I I released it as a book. Yeah, it turns out I don't know how to write a novella. I know how to write a an novel. Um, and so um, – I wrote it as a prequel because I, I blew up the world, I, uh, I, I re- but I really liked that world, and I really wanted to keep playing around with it, and that's why I wrote Game of War, but once I had Game of War, a lot of the thinking that I put into that book came from the thinking that I had been doing in the back of my mind about where could this world go, and I created a lot of elements that I leveraged in order to make um, future progress, in order to make House of Prophecy. Um, so so it all kind of worked out, but that's the reason I went backward. Uh is because I didn't really think that I was going to make this into a series and it ended up turning into into a series of four books. Okay. And speaking of series of four books, uh, we talked in the pre-show that uh, you're definitely
11: thinking about doing it a whole box set type thing. Mm-hmm. And also I wanted to get an update from you on uh the audiobooks uh, status of this, because you have done audiobooks and you read them yourself.
12: Yes, yes, I narrate them myself, and the reason I do that um, is it's uh, it's because I was an audio director um, in for my games, and so I directed all the audio for all my games, all I all the the voice work, um, and I actually did acting, and I was a I actually had a big part in a couple of my games, so I had that's because of my theater background. I would kick myself if I didn't narrate my own books, um, and so and for those who don't know, I was really nervous about that the first time I I did an audiobook. Um, I actually put up for auditions. I got a bunch of auditions. I listened to them and I said, I can do that. I, and in fact, I can do it better. I remember you I mentioned know. that on your first interview with us when the first book was coming <laughs> <Right. out. laughs> Yeah. And, and I can do it better because I know the material really well. And so I did a, a, a version of my audition. I sent it out to the people I trusted. I said, who had never heard me before. And I said, choose the best one. And most of them chose me. And so at that point, I said, okay, I, I have to go all in. I have to do that. I would kick myself if not. And I'm all about ROI. I don't want to have to pay anybody if I don't have to. So, <laughs> so I did it myself, and I'm I'm really happy. Not only because I think the quality of the work is, is there, but because it ended up being a big part of my editing process. So like I told you yesterday, I finished the edits, I put the arcs together, and I'm sending them out. But a huge part of my editing process is – um, listen to myself reading the book and then find any errors that slip through. And so I will do that. I'll mark down little notes as I'm recording, and that will become the manuscript that I release.
11: Okay. Now, what is the official um are you doing hardcover and softcover for those who want the physical ones at the same time? Like I know you had some delays with hardcovers previously.
12: Yeah, part of that was COVID and I think how it affected my my printer, which is Ingram Spark. Um, they really suffered. I, they took it months to deliver. They have been doing better now, so there's no reason that the hardcover should be significantly delayed from the paperback, except that they are still they still lag um, my other printer. Um, but I, as soon as I can, I'm going to get it to them, uh, and they will they will print it. And I'm going to hope um, for the best. It probably won't be on launch day uh, for hardcover, but I don't think it'll be significantly longer than that. Okay. That's and
11: the, then as far as the uh, the box set, uh, is that something you have made a decision on, or is that something that you're still
12: kind of up in the air about? So when you say box set, um, do you mean like a set that actually has a physical box around it? Possibly, yeah. Uh, okay. So the idea of a box set is usually there's a graphical representation of a, of a box, but you're buying it like on Amazon and you're getting all the eBooks uh, for like a, a discounted price. Um, so you get all the books, but you don't get a box. That's yeah, a more physical, sorry. Yeah. yeah, so as far as a a collection, I'll definitely sell the collection at a reduced price on my site. Um, will there be a physical box around it? I don't know. I think they're really expensive to print uh, for if you don't do like a huge number of them. So I'll probably do a few and maybe I'll make those like, you know, some like a deluxe collector's edition or something? Yeah, you know, it'll be, you're, you're going to pay for the box. I mean, there's no way around it. Um, unless I find a way to make them really cheap, which I don't think I can. Um, so so there will be a collection, but will there be a box? That's that's still a big, that's a question mark.
11: Okay. And then um, you've you mentioned, I would, I would of course. I would love one,
12: by the way. I, I absolutely <laughs> would love one.
11: <laughs> you can make it like that special watch
12: yeah <laughs> there's only one in existence yeah
11: sure <laughs> um now you mentioned that you've got some uh, you've been doing a lot of book signings and stuff recently for your your previous books too and of course in the announcement of the upcoming one um just so people that uh can know when and where to go I, i'm assuming most of the ones you've got currently signed up for are going to be local to you in, in the california area do you have any plans for doing a, a wider book tour on this too
12: so uh
11: And also any dates that you've got right now that you can let people know.
12: Right. Um, So let me actually just bring up my schedule. Um, So here's the deal. Um, San Francisco is a really target rich area for places that I can go where I will sell a lot of books. Um, And so I used to go to sort of mom and pop stores, but they just didn't have the foot traffic. And it was really demoralizing, both for me and for them, um, because I I just didn't sell any. And I figured I figured that's what signings are about. You know, that's just how they work. But then I did one signing at um, a Barnes and Noble and I like I sold 40 uh, books on that one day. And I'm like, this is different. They have foot traffic. This makes a lot of sense. And so I started going. Um, I did more Barnes and Nobles uh, because once I had a really successful one at one of them, they started talking, and they let the other Barnes and Nobles know that this is someone you you want to bring in. And so I have done a ton in this area, and I I don't think I've even hit half of them. There are so many Barnes and Nobles in my uh, within driving distance that uh, I, I can't. It wouldn't make sense for me to range out of there. Because it's, I'm not at the stage yet where I have fans coming to see me. I'm going to these places to let people discover me. I'm using that foot traffic and then showing them my work and explaining why they might uh, enjoy it. And, and that works for me. Um, so I can't imagine that I'll go on a bigger uh, tour unless the books are picked up for TV or movie and... The, the 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 talks are still ongoing about that if that happens the books will definitely be picked up by a major publisher and uh, they'll be much more widely available and i will go anywhere they tell me to go
11: have you considered going to one of the big conventions like a comic con or something along that line uh, to do it where you don't have to like travel constantly all over the place but maybe do a couple big hits in a year
12: so um yes um i am i've yet to find sort of the convention that I think speaks to exactly what I, I want to do. I, I was um, signed up actually to do Fan X in Salt Lake City because there was a number of authors that are going to have a booth there, um, and I was going to be one of them. But they jacked the prices up at the last minute here. That plus travel plus shipping all the, all the books and everything, it just didn't make financial sense. And you compare that to like – so the difference between um, Barnes & Noble – and half price books. Does anyone have half price books around them?
11: And I don't up here in Canada. Yeah,
12: I, I do. So a, a lot of people <laughs> don't, but I have four uh, near where I live. And half price books, you would assume they're oh, they're a used bookstore. Why, you know, why would you want to sign there? But the truth is, they get the same foot traffic as a Barnes and Noble. And I get to sell directly to the customer, which means I get to keep 100%. Barnes and Noble takes 40% off the top. So, it's a lot harder to make money there than it is at a half price book. So, I half price books is my number one place to go. I'm, I've got them all booked for launch month. I'm every weekend I'm going to a new half price books. Um, and then I'm going to a ton of, of Barnes and Noble. I still love them, but it's just a lot harder to make money there. Um, and so, you know, that's, I find that if I go to a place like a bookstore where I'm the only person, I'm the only game in town, it's a lot more effective than going to a big show where I am really struggling to get people's attention. And for a big show, I'm paying for whatever space I'm taking at these bookstores. I'm not it's free. It's me and a table and go at it. And then at Barnes and Noble, they just, they um, settle up at the end of the day and at uh, half price books, I'm actually selling using my little, uh, a uh, little credit card machine. So, so let us know
0: when you're at the half price in Brookfield, Wisconsin. <laughs> uh,
12: I will definitely let you know.
8: <laughs> do you have any thoughts about what you're going to do after the series? Um, are you uh, at all interested in writing about the experience of being a you know programmer coming up? you know, in, in, you know, the early days of computing and stuff like that, or do you want to stick with the...
0: Or would you rather be a serial serialist?
8: Yeah.
12: Uh, Well, so... So you're talking about me doing an autobiography? I don't know that I've... Well, not so much that, because... You
11: know, well, I think he's meaning more of a state of the industry type thing, like when you were coming yeah. up, that's when PC games started to really take off and you mm-hmm. become pick- studios as opposed to like you know mon Pop or some kid in his basement type thing.
8: Well, and you happened to pick out uh, the color computer, which wasn't you know like an apple or something else, and it's right. like an underdog thing and and uh and where you wound up. I mean, you know, and it could be even I you know I have no idea you know how a book is brought about as far as the thought process and all, but you have your life and and you can fictionalize <laughs> it, I guess, and make it even uh, better than having a, uh, a new Corvette or something that you, you, you won from all your sales, you know, like uh, some of us <laughs>
12: enjoy <laughs> Ferraris, maybe. <laughs> so the exploration that I've done on my life, um, I've normally done it in terms of writing sort of behind the scenes stories about how games got made because they're always disasters. And then it's a matter of trying to figure out how to salvage the, the disaster and, and ship something that's that's worth shipping. Um, and I've put a lot of those on my blog site. I can't – it's it's possible that those things could combine to become a book, um, but I don't think it's it would necessarily – Uh, reach the audience, reach a big enough audience that would make it worthwhile. I'm talking about the color computer. Honestly, uh, I love this environment to talk about the color computer, but I can't really imagine writing it to a sort of a larger audience. Um, and, And that process is a very different process in my mind than coming up with a creative story world, all of that. And that's really what motivates me. It's not really, you know, the idea of, Turning that into a business, you know, and selling books and making TV shows and movies and all that, all of that is great. I love that process too, but I love the creative part of it the most. It's the reason I do it. It's the reason I was making games. It wasn't really to make money making games, but I was happy to be able to do that. Um, I love coming up with it all. And I'm, you know, young enough that I can keep doing that for a while regardless of, you know, if anyone's paying me for it. Um, so I think that's probably where I'll stick. Now, the the larger question, which is the one I'm wrestling with, is what, I, what am I going to do after this? Because this is the finale to the series. I love this world. I love these characters. I would love to continue it, working with them in some way. Does that mean making a new series after this one? Maybe. Does that mean, like, going back and giving Dantes a couple of more books in his series? Because he's theoretically in the prequel, which is not the actual core trilogy. Maybe. But I don't know. Um, I kind of want to see how people feel about the book I'm releasing now. Because I don't want to keep releasing books that force you to read other books unless there are enough people reading those books. So I'm kind of interested in maybe I'll focus on marketing for a little bit. But I'm sure my fingers will start itching and get to a typewriter at some point. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have
11: any other non-related to the the chaos series that uh, you've got kind of percolating that you might do as a future thing anything else that's been floating around your head as far as writing?
12: Yeah, I had a another book um that I was seriously considering doing that came out of a project um where I was working with a designer who was having sort of creative uh, blocks about his main character and so i constructed this uh, i couldn't help it i just constructed this uh, world and and some new characters that i actually really liked and then thought and i asked him at the end he didn't use a lot of what i was proposing because i was going in different directions than than he wanted to with his project and so i said well can i take this and make this into something else and he's like yeah absolutely it's all yours um so i've be- i put that on the back burner for a long time I might come back to it, but it's not—it's not my first love. This world, these these characters—it's—it's um, it's where I want to be if I can make money being there, because it's so fulfilling. And if you read the the finale, um, I think you'll understand why, and you'll understand sort of how deep that rabbit hole goes for this world.
11: Okay uh retro mac uk uh, if you're able to come by the mic there i know you posted a question in the the chat here i thought you might as well ask it in person
14: yeah so i was just going to ask obviously about the potential of a a worldwide um tour with the book and your thoughts around a film company maybe picking it up for a possible movie franchise and how you would feel about possibly maybe directing um alongside that wow wow (laughs)
12: That's, there's a
14: lot of ifs
12: in there. Um,
10: in. Here on the Cocoa Nation, we're notorious for feature creep.
12: <laughs> yep, yep some feature creep. So let me take that one step at a time. And I know I've discussed this a little bit here before, but the first thing is, so I made a, a little game called The Wheel of Time. And it was based on the Robert Jordan books of the same name. Um, those books became a TV series. And it's actually done reasonably well. Um, when I was on a podcast for the wheel of time game, there was someone listening to that. And it was the executive producer of the wheel of time TV series. He contacted me and together we relaunched the, um, uh, the game to coincide with the launch of the series. But in so doing, he's now evaluating my books for potential TV series or movie. So that is my first, uh, contact that could potentially cause something on top of that. My ex boss, from Legend, which is where I made all most of my games that were, you know, post Coco, um, he is now head of games at Netflix, and so he is shopping my books at Netflix. So you never know. I have two channels that mm-hmm. could possibly make something happen, and both of them are equally as viable as, as they've ever been. Um, both of them, I thinking, I'm I think we're kind of waiting to see the finale. They wanted the complete series in order to be able to pitch that as a series. Yeah. Um, so, so either things won't happen now or they will happen now that the, the final book is done. Um, but they, uh, but I have possibilities now, um, if something does happen that opens up a lot of doors, but I don't think the door that it opens is me directing it, <laughs> uh, I, that, that happened um, with Wing Commander. Uh, Chris Roberts got his chance to direct uh, a movie based on his game, and it sucked. Um, so I I think they would <laughs> want people, and, and I would want people who are really, really good at, and experienced at that to, uh, to take the helm. And so, and I know, you know, being the writer, you have only so much influence over the end product. You need a showrunner that is going to hopefully share your vision, but not always share your vision. And I think you know I've been making products for most of my life. I understand the trade-offs. I would rather have a product than have no product. Um, and I will try my damnedest to make sure that that product is as high quality as possible. But I know, well, I will if something happens, I will only have so much ma- so much to say about that. Because so things, I,
14: things like these series tend to get picked up, you know, eventually, and then you have the films, and then eventually it becomes like game development. You know, those future like titles to come out on PC and different other platforms. So it'd be interesting to see where this goes. It's um, quite exciting.
12: And I would actually be way more interested in being very involved in any game development that happened based on my books. because I have way more experience, I could be more valuable along those lines. Um, So yes, I have theater background. I have, you know, voice direction background, but I'm not gonna screw up a TV series. Don't put me in a position where I could (laughs) screw it up. but i know that if i get involved in game development i'm i'm going to be way more valuable in that role so i hope it all happens that would be really cool if it does and fingers crossed maybe something will
11: so if it did get into the tv or movie series type thing would you want any position at all within the 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 strata of, of making the movie or would you just be a consultant as of the writer of the book i
12: will i will take any position they give me I, my point is I'm never going to get in the way of making that happen. Uh, I'm not going to be the uh, the the troublesome writer who is holding up the contract and saying you're, you're not going to be, be the Harlan Ellison of the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm way too pragmatic for that. For some um, people I, like
14: to get involved.
12: Like creatively. I would love I would love to be involved creatively. I mean, obviously, it's the reason I did my own audio books. I understand the material better than anybody. Of course I do.
14: And not only um, really that, you have an obligation to protect the legacy of the books as well. That's true. That
12: is actually very true. I don't want uh, somebody else's failed attempt to undermine my own brand. And so I'm very interested in doing that. What I'm not interested in doing is making it hard to make this process move forward. So, yes, I will be as involved as I can possibly be if that ever happens. I, you know, it's a big dice roll as to whether or not that would actually happen. But, you know, part of the, uh, the challenge is knowing the right people. And I hope I do. Uh so we'll we'll see, see how it goes. And as you
11: mentioned, you've got two opportunities there that are that are possible. So you're
12: you're stacking the odds a bit in your favor there. That's right. And believe me, that's my closer when I pitch. And uh my, my the end of my pitch at all these places is you happen to walk into this half price books on this day where I'm signing first edition copies of these books before they blow up. And that that usually gets them. <laughs>
11: <laughs> now, how far away – we haven't got to – you're mentioning specific dates and stuff here, but how far away? Are you just staying strictly in the San Francisco area? Are you going oh, a little bit yes. throughout California, et cetera?
12: No, I am I, – I mean, like I said, the area around the Bay Area is so target-rich. Um, it doesn't make sense for me to drive more than like an hour. Um, and I would love to go on a, a bigger tour, but it would have to be like, you know, big events – that would take me outside of this area. Otherwise, if it's me just going to a store, I can just go to any store in my area and get the same kind of experience. I can even do that multiple times, which I do. I've I've gone back to these uh, a number of times because it's all new people every time I go. And so um, just to let you know, um, February 24th, I'm gonna be at the Walnut Creek Barnes & Noble. March 9th, I'm at the Berkeley Half Price Books. March 16th, I'm at the Concord Half Price Books. Um, March 23rd. These are all Saturdays, by the way. I'm at the Dublin Half Price Books. Dublin, they love me there. Um, she told me that I can come anytime I want. She wanted me um, before the launch. She wanted me after the launch. She she just wants to keep me coming back. And I, I again, I, I can't, there's nothing better than Half Price Books. On uh, March 30th, I'm at the Concord Barnes & Noble and that's kind of my official Barnes & Noble launch party. Um, on April 13th, I'm at the Fremont Half Price Books. On April 24th, I'm at the Barnes & Noble El Cerrito. And uh, March, uh, May 11th, I'm at the Barnes & Noble Fairfield. And on July 6th, I'm at the Santa Rosa Barnes & Noble. There's two Barnes & Nobles that are opening and they've invited me to their grand opening. Um, And one is in uh, San Bruno and the other is in Antioch. Uh, So those aren't on my calendar yet because I don't know what the dates are. But you see, even locally, my schedule's packed. It's like I can't. I can't travel for a big thing unless I know the impact is going to be huge. And I just I don't see that yet. And
11: that's where if you can find a convention that would fit you properly, that would be a good one to go to if you want to venture beyond the emphasis. Right. Period.
12: And again, I, I had dreams of doing that exact same thing. And then I found that I got the same experience, but just being the only guy there where everybody who comes in through the front door, I'm right there at the front door. I'm I'm pitching my books. I'm selling. I sell between 40 and 90 books um every saturday i go to one of these things so, so i don't so know no, no, I would match that going somewhere else
4: well you know it sounds like may 4th and 5th is open in your
11: calendar <laughs> <laughs> you could probably sell a few books there too i would mention that too yeah. i don't know <laughs> maybe some know. of your sun dog collection too while you're at it right yeah
12: <laughs> yeah that that would be a tri- where is that again
11: uh well carol stream uh, near chicago
13: yeah
11: yeah, that that's a track. It's not too far, actually, from where the old Hyatt Regency that you were familiar with is actually. But I was going from a very different place at that point. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's, it's not, not that far there.
11: by airplane. <laughs> <laughs> we'll even there pick is. you up at the airport. You can save yourself a cab ride.
3: Nice. <laughs> How
2: Can I refuse <laughs> that?
3: <laughs> and, and there'll be and there'll be uh, there'll be some uh, beverages at the uh, show. Some. Uh, mm-hmm.
12: You're just you're just Coco's. impossible to say no. <laughs> yeah.
3: There's going to be so coffee I, there. I, I, I'm I'm thinking I'm seeing with this this tour here that it's probably there's probably not a very large chance that we will uh see you at the half price books in Bethel
12: Park uh I mean uh. not anytime <laughs> soon I'm I'm afraid and, and don't get me wrong I mean as far as the cocoa uh show goes every year you guys do it and I'm not there I feel it I mean I would love to be there it's just it's really difficult for me to to make that happen.
11: Now, uh, I will mention so. it's it's still growing like uh, I I grant I was hoping he was going to be here to, to announce it, but I took a look at the uh the site of the, uh, the site that actually has the tables and who's reserved them. The entire hall is now sold out. We've now got yeah. t- tables out in the hallway.
12: That's fantastic. I mean, uh, you we mentioned that last time I was here that it was uh it was filling up. That's that's phenomenal. I love yep. hearing that.
11: And all, uh, all the ones in the main hall are sold out as of when I checked this morning. So now it's uh, we we've got an additional, I think 11 tables outside. That are now open for, they're going to be in the holidays. That, that's spectacular. One of
12: these days, I'm going to be there.
0: And we'll make yep. you a trip triptych from the Cocoa Fest back to your place with all the half price books in between highlighted. In <laughs> <laughs> Canadian Miles, it's a short drive back. So,
11: yeah. <laughs> Shipping books is not easy, back. by the
12: way. Yep. Shipping books is very heavy. But
11: we'll just get a big tour bus and, you know, that type of thing.
12: When it's a movie, that's where you'll find me <laughs> on my tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. I don't have any other
11: questions, but it sounds like you have a lot of the dates. Are those dates posted up somewhere that people can yes. kind of catch Again,
12: up? Mysterium.blog is your one-stop shop for all this stuff. Just make sure you click on all the links. Uh, so this one is um, events. Um, it has my calendar of uh, upcoming events and also has my old events. See where I've been. But uh, the big ones there are store and also subscribe. I just recently got on Substack because my old... A newsletter. They, they tried to rake me over the coals for, um, uh, for sending things out and they wanted money, like, like a lot of money every month. And sub snack is fantastic. I mean, basically there's no subscriber limit and I can send whenever I want to. So I do a monthly newsletter, um, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, so everyone should go to mysterium.blog and sign up for the, the newsletter and you'll find all the opportunities. And also, um, FYI, if you have read the books and you don't want to wait for the uh, the books to come out in order to get the newest one and you want a free e-copy right now, you can become an ARC reader. Um, I, I just sent those out last night, but I can send a few more. All you have to do is commit to reviewing on the day that it releases, which is the 27th, and I'd be glad to send you. If you've read the other books, I mean, it's a finale, so you have to have read the other books. Um, I'd be glad to send you an e-copy of the book. Cool. And Mark just posted
11: the links to Mysterium.blog blog um, and the Big Cartel one on in the chat there, so people can look that up there and click on them themselves.
3: Very cool. I have a quick question: Do they come out with on uh, for e readers?
12: Yes. E-book? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, so it's available on Amazon and um, okay. and the eBooks there are Kindle, you know, but uh, they can go anywhere. Um, and I haven't yet. I haven't made it available anywhere but there. And the reason um, for that is it's on Kindle uh, Unlimited, which is their, you know, their, they have a, you you get a subscription, and you get all of those books for free. And if you do that, um, you cannot sell the ebook anywhere else. So for now, that's, that's my, exclusive. Yeah. That's, that's my deal. Um, and so I might rethink that eventually, but, I, I think it's uh it's the way I need to be for right now
2: thank
11: you mm-hmm. okay any further questions from the chat or from the panel I've well asked all the ones I wanted
7: I'm not seeing any
12: um uh, hey uh if you have purchased the the books before the ebooks um you can um, go now to Amazon and uh, pre-order it um, and honestly, you know, if you're not going to get the physical books, I, uh, I really appreciate those pre-orders because they help in the ratings, the, uh, the ranking of those books on, on the first day, anything that can help get the, the rankings up in those first couple of weeks is awesome. Um, cause those are the things that cause visibility for the book and, uh, and I, I think that's kind of what I'm going to be focused on immediately. I, again, I don't know what I'm going to work on, what what book the next book is. I'm going to focus on marketing because I don't do it as well as I need to. I need to get get those rankings up. Um, so, uh, any anything you can do, uh, I'd love to to get the help and get the word out,
7: merchandising.
12: Yeah,
11: yeah. yeah.
5: Cool.
11: Well, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for digging out all that Cocoa stuff. I know that was a bit of a pain in the ass. <laughs> pain in everywhere. <laughs> it, was, it was for exercise, I guess. But uh,
12: uh-huh. thanks, um, Well, for- but again, thank you for having me. I mean, so uh, you are my people. Um, and I say that not just because you share a, a really intense interest in the Kelly computer, but, you know, we're all kind of the same generation. And I think that's why – the people who have actually purchased my books kind of like them because we're all sort of have that same mindset. I think that, you know, even though they're, they're sort of YA it, you know, 80% of the people who who read YA are adults. And uh, I, I think, uh, I think, you know, it it can connect with people of our generation. So I actually really appreciate the people who've gone on this journey with me. And I thank you so much for letting me come back on here. I, it's the one thing I actually really look forward to doing every year when I release a book is coming here and chatting about it. And not only that, but, you know, all the, the Cocoa stuff as well, because that's it's awesome. It's, it's, both things are near and dear to my heart. So thank you so much. You're very generous with your time, and I appreciate you you having me. Oh, thanks again for coming on. I see Coconut Bob has actually
11: launched a Sundog system <laughs> game there. We can see the logo. The friendly <laughs> logo.
12: <laughs> And actually, Tom Mortel is the guy who made that. So we definitely need to get him here.
11: Yeah. Yeah, that'd be really cool if we can get him. If you get in contact with him uh, and then just you know give us a shout here, we'll definitely have him on. Sure. Oh, it's Sinistar.
12: That's what's going on.
7: Tom Mortel's blog has a real good description of stack blasting. And I assume the person he's talking about is you. Yep. He's talking yep. about optimizing the game.
12: Yeah, yep. I was trying to figure out if that was about Kim Guy or if that was about uh, Warrior King. That I was think. about Warrior King. Yeah, there was there were things I could have done to optimize that further. I realized in retrospect, um, but, uh, but it, it did pretty well for my level of, of uh, programming at the time. Yeah.
11: Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks very much. Uh, if I, I'm a busy guy, you probably don't have time to hang around after the show here. I will mention that uh, one of the news stories is actually covering a game that is currently being written by Jim Mullis uh, using Sundogs Graphic Express. That's so sweet. he actually, the video it's running pretty slow right now plus he had a bit of problem with the capture was skipping frames and stuff but he's he's working on you know augmenting it with some ml routines but so far it's just purely in basic and it's a full 16 colors superpowers uh, based on the dc comics so i,
12: I can't i really want to see that
4: okay and ready for commercial
11: sure
6: Taylor. We're watching the Coco Nation Show. Yeah, we are. Woo!
2: You should too.
3: Everyone, it's your good buddy, your good pal, Amigo Aaron, joined by that dastardly, The Brent from ARG Presents. You're watching Coco Nation.
5: I thought that should have been longer.
4: The Coco Nation show would like to thank the following patrons. Alex Geyer, Brendan Donahue, Brian Walsh, Brian Weasler, Karen Ascom, Coconut Bob. Daddy Burrito, David Ladd, Derek Smithson, Diego BF 109, Don Barber, Eric Canalis, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Wabke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Justin Larson, Ken Reichard, Kevin Holloway, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, R. Alan Murphy, Retro Tech Time, Rob Bidman, Rocky Hill, Steve Batson, TJB Chris, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom S., and William A. Thing. Thank you so much, patrons.
6: Welcome to everybody's favorite segment. Who's new to Discord?
15: B Brain says, Hi, all. My name is Steve S. I cut my teeth on a Model 1 in grade school. 78? Though our family's first computer was an OG Coco, 32K Model E. Thus began my multi-year obsession with writing games. Recently picked up a Coco 3 and an SDC cart, and have been rediscovering a few of my games in the archive. I have a couple of ideas for future Coco-related projects, so figured I'd join the community here. The previous bios were edited for time. Thanks to, Boyzen. Glenside Computer Club, Paul Fiscarelli, Tandy Color Computer 3, and the Coco Nation Patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. Just go to discord.thecoconation.com.
0: See you on Discord! Okay, let's
4: see. Turn this button on here. Uh, Rick, you're up.
0: Oh, okay. Just a quick, am I here? Surprise, you're up. Okay. Well, I guess uh, just a quick update. Um, My GitHub has been broken for some time and I didn't realize it. So now um, the code that's there now actually should work and uh, do web server things unless it crashes. No, hey, so it's working again. So the mysterious uh, network error is gone and we can uh, start playing with uh, the real problem of creating HTML pages again. Anyway, that's it. If you've been trying to use my code and it hasn't been working, it works now. Sorry. Um, OK. Which URL? It's all better. <laughs> oh, my GitHub. Um, yeah, which um, one? I didn't think to know it. The dub the one And geez.
7: Is it the Cocoa.io one, or it's the other one?
0: Yeah, the Cocoa.io the man life is so hard
8: uh where's github
0: github get the link show me my page it's saved here oh, this is ridiculous I can't get into it right now um I'll I have to post it later the people who are affected know where to go I guess
7: I could say Oh, I found the one three hours ago. Okay. Coco WWW. Yeah, that one. Okay. Thank you. I, I was totally unprepared there. I check it regularly, but there haven't been any updates. I figured you're just holding out on us.
0: Well, I didn't realize it was broken, so I left it broken.
7: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: then uh, the infamous Mr. Murphy informed me that uh, it was broke, so I fixed it. And now we're to the end of the page bug that we were at before. So we have solved all the regressive bugs and gone back to the current
9: bugs.
4: All right. Uh, Anybody else have any project updates?
9: Uh, I do. Uh, My uh, 6309 uh, computer is uh, on the way. I've had issues last week. Um, Half of my program was working and the other half not. I was wondering what is going on. So it turns out that I had two address lines inverted in my circuit. it <laughs> will do it. <laughs> yeah. So now coding is a lot better now. <laughs> it's faster. <laughs>
0: it's like no trying to
11: program scratch- the Apple II graphic screen—that's what uh, it is. Just
9: it was
0: jumping all over. Exactly. If it's the first two, then you've just made the Big Indian Love Indian.
9: Yeah. yeah. It was really a head scratcher, and I showed Curtis what's wrong with my code
11: and I'm, I'm looking at it and going there's nothing wrong with your code i can't see why this is crashing it's
9: fine all right
0: so that's just the beauty of software i mean hardware design yeah
9: everything
5: that's why i stick with software
0: yeah everything works and it still doesn't work
5: software has <laughs> its moments too okay anybody else
4: Okay. Uh, Curtis.
11: Hey, so I'll just, this is going to be out of sequence here. I'm just going to show one of the news stories just because Glenn's here and I, I don't want to you know wait until you know five hours of news have gone by first. Uh, but basically, Jim Mullis is working on um, a Superpowers game. And for those of you familiar with it, that was a toy line for DC Comics. <clears throat> and he's writing this in BASIC using Sundog's Graphic Express system by Jeff Steidel. And uh, this new one here is actually, it's fairly long. I won't play the whole thing. I'll just jump around here. But he's added a bunch of new characters. The scrolling horizontal uh, world that you're going through is now nine screens long. Um, and hes it, he realized it's slow. I mean, it's running a lot better than basic by itself would type thing. But he's actually in, enlisted, I think it was a Paul Fiscarelli who's done a lot of really cool, you know, sprite machine language demo stuff on the Cocoa 3 is actually going to help him write a couple of machine language teams to augment a few things that are slowing it down. but. I thought I would show a bit of that. So, and Now, unfortunately, when he did the capture here, he didn't notice at the time, but none of the audio came through. Because he does have some audio in there, too, but you won't hear it. <laughs> not today.
2: Okay, is that coming through? Mm-hmm. I'm not
3: hearing any audio. Yeah. <laughs>
11: Now, this is a splash screen that comes built in with Graph Express, and I think you have to include it, if I remember, the licensing, uh, Glenn, just to let people know where the engine came from, if I remember. That's a shame, but okay. (laughs) 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 He's also been getting help from uh, Glenn Hewlett and and Stuart Wiskalipant. hope I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, I'll just fast forward a bit. So here's kind of the title screen for it. Now, if you guys have ever collected the comics, that was the exact same logo they used for the comics as well. I think it's a little bit of a background for the game here. These are some of the characters you get to pick from. He doesn't have them all enabled at this point, but... Now it's got the long loading of the entire maps and stuff, so I'll fast-forward that part to a little bit of the gameplay.
2: All the graphics look scanned
11: from
5: something.
11: Yeah, Yeah, I think he did uh, digitize a few pictures and photos and stuff. The character stuff are well-drawn. It's running, like I said, a bit slow, and that's where he's getting some help from... uh, I probably going to end up using like compiled sprites or something. But unlike, say, I get put, if you're doing this purely in basic, it's not, well, one, it's faster than that would be, but it's also doing proper background masking. So it's not like wiping out these big rectangles. But he's got a whole like cityscape and a park and stuff. Now, one part I will fast forward here, and uh, that's probably about it. I'll do for this one. He's got one interesting uh, building that pops up. It's almost a strategy game. <laughs> yeah, this speed it is. <laughs> Stick
0: it on an emulator, crank it up to 89 megahertz.
11: Yeah, gimme would help here for
3: sure. Is this like the turn based frogger?
2: <laughs>
11: <laughs> you can see the the background, uh the one building that's starting to scroll onto the screen here. Oh,
4: so this is historical
2: yeah. then.
11: <laughs> yeah. A little heat vision blast that Superman sends out and stuff too. But I know he's been when he's been talking that it sounds like they're gonna be able to speed up quite a bit of this uh, by quite a lot actually. So
9: how will they be able to speed it up? Oh. Well,
11: right now it's using like it's Graphic Express is a little add on for basic mm-hmm. and basic just for setting up variables and stuff is like dog slow. Okay. So they're going to be doing some direct ML routines uh, for, you know, some of the stuff that's really, really speed critical. And that, that'll really help passing parameters back and forth and stuff. So, anyway, I just wanted to kind of show that because that's actually something using the Graph Express, which uh, Glenn actually sold through Sundog. So, It's really fun. Yeah. I I know it runs a bit smoother. He he was getting like skip frames and stuff, trying to do the capture. And uh, it it, it somehow didn't capture the sound at all. So it actually does play a bit faster and smoother in real life than it does in this video, which he apologized for, but. I just want to sneak that in there. So the characters are fairly well drawn. The backgrounds, as you noticed, are digitized. Type thing though. I think he mentioned he's going to do a little bit more cleanup. I know some of the bushes and stuff actually look quite good on them, so I think he's already started that process. But yeah, he's creating a whole world and he's going to have a whole fleet of enemies and a whole fleet of heroes and stuff. It's kind of like Champion actually. It's kind of like a
12: sequel to that almost. <laughs>
6: yeah.
12: <laughs> <laughs> I actually think I'm I am going to run. I really appreciate you showing that to me. It's, it looks like a lot of fun. Um, I will say I just set up the uh, the discount code. Uh, so, Coco Nation is now a, uh, a coupon you can use on the finale. Um, and if you get the other books, it's 15% off anyway. I already have a, a a little discount for that. So, come on over to Mysterium.blog, take a look at the books, and I will see you guys all later. Okay. Thanks again for coming right. by, Glenn. All right. Thanks very much. Bye bye. All right. Bye.
4: Okay. Next up Game On Results. Take a sip of coffee there, Ken, and unmute unmute yourself.
1: Are you ready, Sloopy? You got to give the game on results now. All right,
4: here's the intro.
3: Welcome, everybody,
1: to the Coco Nation Game On Challenge of the Week results video. This week we played Time Fighter. We had a total of 16 scores submitted. The first one was from Coconut Bob with a score of 11,018. Unfortunately, I think he made a mistake and this wasn't the proper game, mostly because The end screen looked different, and I don't think there's a way you can get a score that ends in 18. If I am wrong about this, I apologize. And then we had Marco with 1,200. Mark B with 1,400. Henry III, 2,400. Ed Rhodes, 2,500. Pedro Pena, 2,600. Sloopy Malibu, 4,200. Mr. Dave, 6,309, 5,200. Tied for seventh, we had Canadian Retro Things and Jim Rye with 6,200. Sab had 6,600. L. Curtis Boyle, 10,400. Shenley and Tasman tied for third with 10,700. Second was Brian Walsh with 27,500. And this week's number one score goes to Dr. Ted with 33,800. Thanks, everybody that played. We'll see you again next week.
4: And the Cocoa Nation salutes Dr. Ted. Salute. Yeehaw.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So. Time Fighter. I did manage to find a couple of. uh, Reviews of this game. Uh, The first one is from Rainbow, what is it, March of 1984, and they basically just say it's uh, challenging, contains great graphics and sound, holds your interest, even after a couple of dozen run-throughs. The game had a lot of professional expertise that went into it. So expect to have a good time improving your skills during the many attempts that you're going to have playing this game. And uh, basically the reviewer at the end says that he knows that you will consider this program one of the best in your library of computer games. It's a real gem. So he really liked it. The other one was from uh yeah another magazine that i can't see what it's oh, a computer right magazine yeah that's the one um a little short write-up about it on here and uh basically a uh, game that gets the most out of your color computer it's fast graphics are well done complaint that the joystick control is a little bit sluggish at times but the game is a winner not a game to be easily mastered and then put away on the top shelf in the closet. So both of them basically say that this game has a lot of replayability. Which is a good thing for a game.
11: Yeah. And I think our two highest score winners actually made it to the the final boss too, didn't they? I think so, yeah. I never even got close. So
10: Yes, uh, replayability and challenging are two words you could certainly use to describe this game
11: <laughs> they don't Brian Walsh like the, the chat says uh his word is infuriating that's what he calls it <laughs> hey it wasn't the most infuriating game we've played in the last few weeks no not even close <laughs> not even the last two weeks
1: <laughs> it's hard <So> I will <laughs>
11: give you that but that's so a-
1: I was gonna say that that doesn't sound like the two words you'd use to describe it. Uh,
10: let's just say they'd be on the list, but nowhere near the top.
9: <laughs> many, <laughs>
0: many, many more words.
10: There's and a thesaurus then, again. We need in the yeah, t- top would, ten thousand, right? I would uh, use. I would uh, say the words that I'm uh, thinking, <laughs> but uh, I don't think they're allowed. No, no. So. Now we're family show, sleepy. <laughs> well, then we should be playing family games. <laughs> No, two nice. people made it to the boss. I made it to uh,
11: just yeah. about made it to the third time period. I was within a couple of ships.
10: And a stop clock is right twice a day. Also,
1: wasn't that bad? I I mean I could name a lot worse
10: games that have come out of Australia recently.
2: <laughs>
10: <laughs> it's a good game.
2: Yeah, see exactly he's come around now he said game. it's a good game now so there
10: so good
11: it's a good game
10: jumping joey is a good game yes
11: <laughs> it's a hard game i will give you that time fighter yeah. is a hard game once it you kind of get used to it though it's it's not too bad there's little t- tips and trick techniques you can use yep so
1: as um for example curtis what are some tips and tricks that you can use in this game to get a better score
11: uh fly. okay so on the uh the first level with the dragons flying at you um basically the the dragons will usually shoot only one shot they won't shoot a second one so if you get them to shoot a shot right off the bat and then just wait for the bullet to go by then you just move over and kill them um so basically if you just time it and don't try to get them as soon as they appear on the screen because then they might block the shot with another shot and if you're too busy trying to dodge you you'll end up you know missing them entirely not even shoot them um on the uh, radar screen where you're setting out the radar beams, remember you have to go back to the middle. I saw quite a few players were not doing that. They'd get the first one to go, and then they'd never do it again, and they would be able to see when the ships are coming down. But you're going to get a couple of beams out. In fact, if you go up near the top, you can actually get the beam to go out you know, fairly rapid fire, so you really know what's coming down, uh, which makes it a bit easier as well. The uh, blue balls um, <laughs> of death, or the mines, I think is what they call them, the instructions. On the second time period, that one, you kind of have to lure it to one side and then kind of go diagonally to the other direction, down briefly, and then up so you can get around it type thing, as long as there's no planes uh, beside you. The timing with the planes is the hard part there, but you can actually basically dodge it fairly easy once you kind of get used to it. Um, and once again, you know, this is as far as shooting the planes themselves. It's this similar to the dragons. You wait till they do their first shot, then you can get in and kill them. And... uh I can't give you any tips on the the later stuff because I didn't get back onto this. I have in the past. I just didn't wasn't able to do it this week. Um the refueling one, basically just go up near the top. And as soon as you get in inside the ship, just let go of the joystick, let's center it, and then it'll push you down. And you just wait till the fuel gets, you know, near the top, then you come down straight and then diagonally out it around. But you have to come up high in the screen to get within it, or you won't have enough time to get out of the docking station and yeah. you'll get killed.
5: Worst
10: docking station ever! <laughs> so You had to um, be in the direct center of the screen for the uh, radar to go up. Yes. Oh, I thought I was just running out of fuel and it didn't give me anyone. No, I saw a
11: few players uh, didn't didn't pick up on that. Even though we'd mentioned it, I think uh, the week before.
10: Um, the yeah, basically that basically you have to go in the center to
11: shoot the beam up.
10: Yeah, one. Thing- I didn't
1: know that till you mentioned it
10: one thing that I do that I did uh, see I do recommend is when you're shooting them coming down don't shoot them Center shoot them um, off to the side yeah
11: like nip yeah. them in the wing or whatever because otherwise their
10: shot will just stop your shot right and then you don't have to worry about their shot stopping your shot I mean you still have to worry about it hitting you but you don't have to worry about it um stopping your shot because their shots seem to be much more powerful than yours.
11: And also pick your shots because you've got a limited number of bullets. Yes. <laughs> then it becomes a dodge until you can get up to the refueling. No, not even the refueling. You don't get any extra bullets at the refueling. You have to finish the stage to get more bullets. Oh, right, right, right. Which is how many ships you've passed by, not how many you kill. killed. Yeah. I mean, literally, if you just want to see stages. Just dodge everything and don't shoot a darn thing.
3: Yeah.
10: Your score will suck, but. Well, actually, (laughs) if you do that and and, then hurry up to get to, like, the second and third stage and then start shooting, each one of those is worth significantly more points. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, but you start each – you don't get any extra bullets for uh, having them left over at the end of the first stage.
10: So there's no reason not to use up all your bullets in the first stage. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, but you're going to be putting yourself in harm's way trying to shoot the other – shoot them.
11: Yeah, that's where I use where I, I kind of like get in the rhythm where you let them shoot and as soon as their bullet passes your vertical position, jam over and shoot them. And you just kind of like pick off the ones that you can get too quickly and ignore the other ones type thing. But then you almost never run the risk of
10: getting going to unless you get two right beside each other to fire, you know, fairly close to each other time wise. Yeah, I would just like stay off to the side of them and then like just move over just under the wing, shoot and then come back out. And that seemed to be pretty effective.
11: I just died. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do remember when I first saw the ad for it I thought this sounds like Time Pilot I love Time Pilot and then when you get the game it's nothing like Time Pilot except for the yep. traveling through time part
1: so a uh, fairly uh, difficult game but it's actually challenging enough that it doesn't frustrate you huh.
11: Yep. Well, I'd, I'd say it does frustrate you, but you, I mean, you, if, you have to put in the time on this one. This is not one you're going to pick up in like yeah. five minutes and become an expert. This is one it's going to take you repeated plays.
1: But it never gives you to the gets you to the point where you don't think you're going to be able to get a little bit better and a little bit further. Yeah.
11: And, and and as evidence, like two of the people, the top two scores we had this week actually made it past the third stage onto the boss thing, which actually you can see the boss on the uh, intro screen. Mm-hmm a big demon's head, you know, surrounded by these. What was it force fields or saucers? I can't remember now. I haven't made it down that far since probably the nineties. Brian Walsh in the chat is saying, um, "If you hit all the dragons in the first wave, perfect score, you go directly to the second stage. Otherwise, you have to go through the radar stage. Uh, you progress at three thousand four hundred points." So uh, I didn't know that you actually could do a perfect wave and actually skip the, the night bombing beam thing. That's kind of cool. I never did that back in the day. I never did that ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time. I didn't even know what you guys were talking about with this radar screen. Never seen it.
11: Yeah, all those perfect scores you got. Yeah, I think I do
10: my hip waders. It's getting deep in here.
1: <laughs> hey, perfect score on the first level. I ne- I didn't say I ever got a perfect score on the second level.
10: <laughs> I wonder if that works on the
11: further levels. If you can kill all the planes. You jump straight ahead, too, and skip the... Well, continue idea. playing and try to find out for us, Curtis. <laughs> I won't have time for the next little while. Just <laughs> won't. I'm back to work as soon as the show's over, so.
10: So it's going to be a short show.
11: Well, we have we have hard out for Mark. Yeah. So
1: okay, well then we should move on to the other game of the week that we played, and that was Middle Kingdom, which is a Dungeons and Dragons style game, where you have in real time. Uh, Sort of. Sort of. I mean, the time the time doesn't actually make any difference at all in the game. I don't think you get a higher score for finishing it faster or anything like that.
9: Didn't appear so.
11: I did notice a few people have won that game already, too. So that's, that's yeah. definitely easier than uh,
9: Time Fighter. <laughs> yeah. hey, if I manage to do it, everybody can.
11: My My <laughs> advice?
1: Don't play The Magician. He
9: sucks. Or or the Merchant.
1: (laughs) The Merchant's not that bad. Um, I think you actually score more points with the Merchant. I haven't beat it yet with the Merchant, but...
10: Hmm. Oh, people have completed it, so it's easier than the last four or five games that we've played. Yeah.
1: (laughs) The only one I've completed it with is the Warrior, except that uh, I think when I played the Merchant, I had almost as many points as I got with the warrior before finishing the game. And I wasn't, I only had one ring at the time. So I'm not sure. Don't quote me on this, but maybe I just got lucky in that game, but I think you actually get more points when you kill things.
11: It's fairly randomized. And I think that's one of the the flaws of the game. It's a bit too random in spots. Like you can play a game and you just get incinerated by monsters and you don't do anything good on it. And the next one, you can make it all the way through, whether you pick the same character or not. So it's it's one of those games where the randomness is too weighted uh, in favor of totally random versus you know some sort of guiding speed Flat. of progress in the game type thing.
1: On the plus side, it's very relaxing to play because you don't really have to do much
11: other than walk around. Yeah, you basically just steer your character and then you just tap the number keys as to what weapon you want to use and you kind of learn as you go. Now, one unique, or not unique, I guess, these days, but fairly unique for the time period was your weapons wear out. And that's uh, not something you You saw in very many games at all. You break your weapon. Yeah.
1: Your uh, spells become less... uh, Effective. Effective after
11: time. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool mechanic. I mean not i can't i'm trying to think of any games
10: back in 84 that would have done that yeah having a wear on your uh weapons is rather interesting but with your spells i would think they would get stronger as time went on because as a wizard you'd be a stronger wizard so your spells would be stronger
1: yeah but you're using up the like you have uh basically um you're picking up a A magical talisman of some
10: sort or
11: something something
1: that can cast a spell and as time goes on that gets weaker and weaker Okay, that
10: makes more sense.
11: Yeah, either that, or the the wizard's getting Alzheimer's and he's just getting dumber and dumber, remembering his spells. That could be a t- <laughs> the t-shirt. worst thing about the wizard is that his hand to hand combat sucks, and
1: there are a <laughs> bunch of monsters in that game that are immune to magic. So yeah, when you get up against them, they've got like sixty hit points, and you can't hit them with any of your magic spells. So you sit there stabbing at them, doing one two points of damage per time, <laughs> yeah. no matter which weapon you're using, and you start out the fight with like 260 hit points and you end up with 30 at the end of it after fighting one guys. Just protect yeah. your sewing machine. That's, that's <laughs> right. that's, 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 you should have the ability to run away from fights.
11: Now, some people have gone through and, and discovered like that game was actually released in the dragon first. I think the amigos figured that out. Then the title screen's a little bit different. And of course the dragon being a PAL system, didn't have mm-hmm. color, so it was designed as a strictly black and white game. They did change some of the graphics coming to the Coco to, you know, do colored borders for some of the walls and stuff that was not part of the original Dragon game. So some graphics were changed, but apparently the person that programmed it, uh, unless it was a hack screen somebody did, but it was, it looks like it was programmed by somebody in Brazil or something.
1: Yeah, well, I was gonna say that the, uh, that's one of the notes I had is that the, um, version you have on your, website compared to the version that we're playing the splash screens are different
3: because yeah.
1: your
11: yours doesn't have a author whereas this one does yeah and that's why I wasn't sure if that was a hack or if that was a real thing but one of the guys in the chat actually mentioned that he'd been in contact with the author and the author remembered writing it and stuff and was I don't no
1: during the chat because I asked him um, do you, about that and he said no I just read the title screen
11: yeah which are like, like my copy didn't have yeah. an author on the title screen it just said JSOFT but if I remember correctly, this was actually sold in the UK before it made it to the North America. Um, i have to double check with Aaron and because they did a bunch of research on it too, but it's the one that came from the dragon to the cocoa rather than the other way around, which is much more common. Okay. I can't hey, remember. No. Is, it, is Brazil PAL or do they have some weird
10: special thing? I was just wondering maybe that's why PAL. it was... They have a type of PAL.
7: Type you of have PAL?
10: Yeah, <laughs> you know, PAL and PAL A, B, C, D, G.
7: I think it's PAL M, I
10: think. Yeah, I think it's PAL M. It's like, yeah, like so probably was a bit of an Powell. easier conversion to keep the
11: speed consistent.
10: Yeah. Um, it's a and sequ- I
11: can't remember their their pal M wouldn't have had artifact
10: colors either then, right? No, it's it's the same pal. It's the frequency of the of the um channel. Oh, it's like sixty hertz pal or something. No, it's fifty hertz pal. Oh, it's Powell, fifty hertz. But it's the or sixty the frequency of the uh channels is different. Okay, that's the M part. Yeah.
11: No, oh, it was a nice little game. It was a fairly unique one. I remember getting it uh, <laughs> back in the day, and uh, I, I played a fair bit of it when I was younger.
1: It was an off-site uh, backup copy that you had?
11: Distributed backup, yes. <laughs> yes. Our entire club distributed backup. That game was never going to disappear. And we actually purchased, uh, that was one the, the club purchased, and unfortunately, that's one of the tapes that got lost at some point, but it, we did have the original
10: manual, the original tape for it. That's oh. all. What- businesses went out of that's why all these companies went out of business because everyone right. <laughs> off site backups
0: every club had one yep.
1: <laughs> hey all the programs that i had were originals because i didn't know any other coco users right? when i had mine so <laughs> i was the club i was yeah exactly
11: <laughs> i did Actually, like a, after i started going to rainbow fest in 86 i did start buying stuff because then i'd meet the people that wrote them and they'd be complaining about piracy and I just, I kind of felt bad. Remember that time I was working too. I wasn't just a student that had no money. So
1: I knew one other person that had a cocoa and he came from a super religious family. So there is no way that there's going to be any offsite backups from him.
11: (laughs) And let's say you had that program that adapted the King James Bible or something like that. Maybe then. (laughs) All (laughs) All right.
1: Well, uh, Sloopy, shall we talk about Thursday night? Sure, we can run
10: through that real quick.
1: Okay, I will share a screen with uh, that then.
10: So, Thursday night, obviously, we were playing uh, Time Fighter and uh, Middle Kingdom. And,
1: and we- some guy was playing an Apple game, but
10: we won't talk about that. <laughs> yeah,
11: no comment. Nonconformist.
10: <laughs> we, had, we had a bad apple among us. <laughs> Sorry, Marco, I couldn't resist. (laughs) No no problem here. Um, Fun was had by some. Games were played by all. (laughs) And uh, it was pretty good. And uh, Sloopy was back to uh, posting, so the echo is back on. Yeah, I did point that out when I briefly entered the chat. And good news, everybody. I found my headset. Oh, awesome. Woo-hoo. Bad news, should... everybody. I can't find my Bluetooth module for the computer because I had this when I had my old laptop, which had Bluetooth built in. But this computer doesn't have Bluetooth built in. So well, I guess you had to get a new computer then. Yeah, right. there, there we go. I need a new computer. Not I heard just... you can sell a pet for one, maybe.
2: <laughs> I have to
10: get them first. I mean, I've been waiting five years now. Four and a half years.
1: Well, they're sitting in my garage. If you want to
10: come pick them up, okay.
0: right? sure, drive.
10: <laughs> Not to mention, I'm I'm getting two of them, so I won't have one if I sell them both.
1: They well, only need to sell one to get a um, another computer.
10: Maybe. So. Anyway. <laughs> yep, back to our subject. Um, yeah, so uh, join us this Thursday where we'll be playing uh, some more um, Middle Earth.
7: Middle
2: Kingdom. Middle
10: Kingdom. Or Middle Kingdom, one of them things.
7: There's a difference?
10: Hopefully I'll be able to uh, complete the game as just like everyone else. And we will also be playing... Oh, wait, that hasn't been announced yet. So... What is we playing next? Well,
1: I've decided that Middle Kingdom was a little bit too easy, so... Oh, uh, God.
11: We're going back (laughs) to the impossible games again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Does anybody recognize this game?
11: Yes. Yeah, it looks familiar. And it's one that uh, is available on multiple platforms, other computers, but every Mm -hmm. version of it is different. And that one clue I'll give people here that haven't guessed it yet, uh, it's from Adventure International. Ooh, Scott
7: Adams.
1: So are you that little guy that's swimming? No, you should probably try to save that guy because he just fell out of a ship you killed. He is falling to his death. You're the orange ship. If you oh, so
9: Wait be- a minute, you shot down a ship and you're saving the people that you shot down? Well, no, I he was a prisoner on the ship. Oh, okay.
11: So the to jump out. It is loosely based in Defender, if that's what you're getting at Frederick. <laughs>
1: and
10: scramble.
11: <laughs> yeah, scramble. kind of a combo. Now, some of the other versions of this game on other computers are much closer to Defender.
10: Please tell me you you meant scramble, not Scrabble. I said scramble. <laughs> okay. I've got a cold though, so
11: just leave me alone. Uh, Sixy got it in the chat. He's the first one. Ah. So, yep, there it is.
7: Yes, Scrabble, and you have to spell the words correctly. Otherwise, you don't make <laughs> points.
1: Yeah. Eliminator I- from yeah. Adventure International.
7: Now, for those
11: of you that regularly show up at the game playing live on uh, the Game on Challenge Live on Thursdays, um, if you guys have other emulators, other machines, and you have other copies of Eliminator, because this was on the Atari, this was on the Apple, the Tear City Model 1 and 3, I would love to have you guys come on and play some of those versions too, because you'll see how different. And Adventure National did this a few times where the same named game by the same company plays quite differently between them. Whereas, you know, say DataSoft, most of the time, you know, their games like Megabug and Dung Beals are pretty well identical gameplay wise. For some reason, adventure international made them quite different. I don't know if they just basically gave a rough premise to an author and said, here, write a game based on the spec. And they never got to see the other versions because they're quite different.
1: And also Mark Siegel says it
11: was done by Lexi Adams, not Scott Adams. Well, actually, Eliminator was done by, uh, We did that one? It wasn't either of the Adams. It was uh, a guy who did other Cocoa games, too. But well, let it's me on just my site. see. <laughs> There's this, yeah, I'm going to look up this
1: L. Curtis Boyle
10: site. Just take a look. <laughs> see see if he knows. Like he knows anything. That's Rick like Monk, maybe? I'm thinking. Um, I, Wikipedia. You can't trust any of the information there. Eliminator.
1: Uh, Brit Monk, oh, I did get right. So it's a Cocoa One, Two, or Three, 32k RAM, disc, or tape,
11: and joystick. I don't think it is an option for keyboard.
1: Uh, does it work with the joystick? I couldn't get it to work with the joystick when I tried it, I could only get it to work with the keyboard.
11: Oh, maybe I, uh, yeah, if I had my uh emulator set up the last time I tried with the joystick mapped to the keyboard, yeah, I might just be getting confused. So, yeah, it with with the, the keyboard, so he's right. You're right. And I'm wrong. Okay.
1: I was going to say it either works with the joystick or the keyboard. One of them. <laughs>
11: <laughs> it works can, by mind control.
1: I can guarantee it's either going to work with a joystick or a keyboard, hmm. but not both at the same time. Um, well, I'd rather a paddle. Well, then you're going to have a lot of trouble because this one actually is, uh, it's a scrolling game. But you're always moving in one direction, and you can move forward, back, up, and down on the screen. The slightly different thing, though, is that you, when you move up and down, your ship tilts. So that's how you fire up or fire down. You tilt and you fly up.
0: So that's why it looked like it was crashing into the ground in that first screenshot. Yes. Okay, that's the if I remember too, the,
11: can... the 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 mountain scrolling is actually multi-level too. Like right? you can fly between mountain ranges and stuff Mm, i remember i don't know i never i i didn't crash into the mountains so i'm not sure but But, you can i think you just you can dip down and fly behind and in front of you know depending which range it is i think i didn't try that but uh the only way that you can shoot the things down
1: the ground is to angle yourself down to shoot them yeah and then sure i guess but um that's also the way that you get fuel and stuff just like scramble not Scrabble, scra- scramble.
11: <laughs> Just say Super Cobra. There won't be any confusion.
1: Okay, <laughs> Super Scrabble. Super <laughs> <laughs> Scrabble.
11: It's it's actually a good game. I remember the, the graphic effects of the the parallax scrolling. I'm pretty sure this is a game I'm thinking of. It's actually fairly well done. Um, and then the fact you can angle your shots is actually kind of cool because a lot of the games like Defender and stuff don't do that. Um. Though it's very loosely based on Defender. In fact, I think one of the one of the first versions of Luminaire, I think, it was the Atari eight bit version. I think, and Sleepy, correct me if I'm wrong, if you remember. But I think it was actually advertised as being Defender, like it was going to be an official Defender at one point, and then they end up changing it near the end. But it's it plays a fair bit differently than the Coco version does. I have no
10: idea, but I will find out what it's like on uh, Thursday. Okay, so you, this is not a game you're familiar with. Never played it on the Atari. Nope. I know Nick, who
11: disappeared off the panel here because he knew I was going to ask him a damn question, um, has played <laughs> it on the Model 1.
10: Yeah, because there's like like thousands upon thousands of games for the uh, Atari 8-bit. So unless it was a well-known, it's not likely I would know it. Cause...
1: Oh, it was Adventure International, so yeah, it should be. Yeah, it's well-known. a pretty major
11: company. I'm surprised you didn't, actually.
10: You know, well, I had a lot of off-site backups to go through. <laughs> I had to check every single one. He only got up to the Ds. He never got to the Es for Eliminator, so. I had to make sure they all worked, you know. <laughs> you don't want a bad backup.
1: Well, it is available. I, ju- I just
11: found it is available for the Commodore 64, so. You can try that version then. Yeah, I'd like to see some of the other ones. I've seen the Model 1, yeah. and I've seen the Atari version play before. I can't remember if I've seen the Apple 2, or it was just a video. But somebody had a, you know, the model yeah. one on. I think it was Nick actually that showed me privately what it was like on the model one and three. Cool, that's All actually right. not a super hard game. That that game's fun. I like that one. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll try harder next week to find something. <laughs> what, but Brian Walsh did say he thinks it's an excellent idea for uh, Nick Moretti's a blend of Defender and Scrabble.
1: <laughs> you got to catch the tiles as
11: they're falling out of the ships quick triple world score quick <laughs> Rearguard almost had that because you had to shoot letters at part of that and that's another adventure national game. <laughs> anyway thursday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific
7: correct ken uh yes what are we talking about yes when the game on challenge live is. Oh,
10: game on challenge. <laughs> okay, yeah. Five. Yeah, like Ken knows anything about that.
11: Huh? <laughs> okay, a couple couple good games to play there. So Middle Kingdom is definitely solvable. Uh, it's fairly random, so you you might have a bad... If you look like you're having a really bad round, just quit and restart. And uh, Eliminator is just fun arcade action. Shoot them up, scrolling. Good, good game to play. I've, I've played it quite a bit when I was younger. I haven't... And it was one I actually got distributed backups up quite a bit later, so I didn't see that one until probably the early 2000s, I don't think. think I finally found it. I didn't have it back in the day when it was first released. I did have Sea Dragon and some other ones from uh, Adventure International as well, but... Cool. Okay, so... Um. If there's nothing else on the game on stuff, I guess we'll go ahead. How much time do you have left, Mark? Before you have your heart out, about an hour and a half. Okay, you should get so through the news then. Full news, yeah. Well, I did eliminate one of them already. We don't. Uh, we don't have to look at the Jim Mullis update. We already did that, so save a bit of time. Anyway, I'll run through the upcoming shows first. Okay, you guys are seeing uh, SoCal BCF? Yep. Okay, so that's coming up pretty soon, actually. That's in like two weeks in Orange, California at the Hotel Fair Event Center. February 17th to 18th. And um, they've actually been picking up a lot of exhibitors and speakers here now. So I thought I'd quickly go through that. Um, So speakers-wise... Uh, food Genetic course, and Thomas Cherry Holmes will be talking, it sounds like, a little bit about the Coco version, though he'll be mainly about the Atari and he has his own booth there if you want to check stuff out too. Um, Randy Kindig of the Floppy Dates podcast and the Antic podcast is going to be there as well, talking about getting the most in from vintage computers with modern upgrades, like the Coco STC. Uh, they've added a few other ones here down at the bottom here too. they got the Blue Sky Rangers a Television is 40th reunion. That's going to be a cool one. Some of the new ones there. And then they've got exhibitors, and that's really filled up. There's a ton of them in here now. There's a couple of Cocoa ones, so I'll just uh, skip forward. Actually, I think I already got on the other tab here already. Yeah, so this first one here called Exhibit Treasures of the 80s with TRS and Treasures, capitalized uh, by Jay Rons and I'll just read it out for the audio listeners here. It says, Tandy's family of color computers were groundbreaking players in the home computer revolution in the 1980s. Several models were produced between 1980 and 1991, providing many young programmers and gamers with their first exposure to computing. Come enjoy a hands-on demonstration of some working examples of this family, including a Coco 2 and a one-of-a-kind, heavily modified MC-10. That intrigues me. And then the second one is the exhibit for the Copico Wi-Fi and more for the Tandy Color computer. And this is Thomas Shanks. Uh, we're working on a Wi-Fi card for the Tandy Color computer based on the Raspberry Pi Pico W I would like to show off what we've got working so far on our currently bedboard stage prototype. Please come connect with us. If you're interested in keeping up with the development or becoming an early alpha tester later this year. So two of the exhibitors are actually going to be showing Coco specifically at the show. So uh, Wayne Campbell, if you're still in the chat, I know that was one show you're going to try to make as you're actually in the area. If you do manage to get out there, please visit these two booths and uh, take some pictures and stuff and send them up, or maybe even try to do a live cast. If you have the capability on your phone. Uh, Next after that is the Interim Computer Festival, hopefully soon to become a VCF, March 23rd to the 24th in Seattle, Washington at Interest Space. And they've got uh, this, as I think we mentioned last week, they've got the schedule up now and they've actually started getting a list of the uh, exhibitors and stuff there too. So it looks like there's some fairly interesting stuff there. This is one I think you said you went to,
5: was that
7: Ken? You went to a year, year ago, two years ago? Six months ago or so. It was in October. Oh, okay. Was it that recent? I thought it was longer. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was in the fall.
11: <clears throat> and I know you had fun at that one. So and Mark, you're still still on on for going to that one? I am. You know? Cool. I'm signing. Did you want to try to do a live there. feed to that or did you want to just take pictures and send
7: Uh we'll see what the bandwidth is like. As I recall when Tim Linder was there, they didn't have good bandwidth. Okay. Is
11: it's at a different facility this year though, isn't it? Or no?
7: Nope. Same place. Okay. It appears appears to be the old admin building for the uh, uh, Rainier Brewing Company.
11: Oh, free booze, awesome. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, (laughs) 40 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next up after that is the Indie Classic. And speaking of Randy Kindig, who from Antic and Floppy Days podcast and is a speaker at the uh, uh, VCF SoCal. He's actually one of the organizers for this one here, too, because it's right in his hometown. In Indianapolis, April 13th to 14th at Crown Plaza. And um, they haven't quite got stuff for exhibitors up yet, at least not when I last checked. I'll just do a quick check. Yeah, nothing there official yet. But they got a few months yet. 69 days from now, so that's coming up soon as well. Of course, the big one for us this year, the 32nd annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest, uh, which is running May the 4th and 5th. May the 4th be with you. I'm still doing Star Trek, um, at the Holiday Inn and Suites in Carroll Stream. And this one, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when we were talking to Glenn during the interview. The entire set of tables that you can rent inside the main hall itself have been completely sold out at this point. And there's 11 tables that will be set up in the hallway. Uh, those are still available, but uh, obviously there's a lot of interest. And I know uh, Brian Weasler is bringing a lot of rare prototypes and early history and stuff about uh the cocoa dating back to before the cocoa one was even released, uh, thanks to Robert Kilgis, author of Skiing, Dino Wars, Music, Quasar Commander, and a bunch of others. Uh so there's a lot of stuff that uh, has not been seen in public before or very, very rarely seen in public before. So there's a lot of stuff. And plus everybody else is making a lot of cool software and hardware. We'll see demos of you know going online with bricks. Um, hardware. I think Henry Strickland's planning to be out there again, and he helped with the demonstration last year as well, so a lot of cool stuff will be going on. This will be one for the ages, I think, and the fact that the tables have sold out so fast, I think it's going to be the biggest one we've had probably in 15 to 20 years, too. And speaking of, there's the official map, and you'll Uh notice red X's on every single table inside, so they're all sold out. And right now, it's just the hallway ones here that are available so that's uh if you're, if you're going to book a table now if we get enough people there that'll become almost its own fest just outside the room there and there's two sets of doors that you can go out uh coming into the hall so you'll you'll still be you know involved with it plus the actual uh main table for you know getting your badges and stuff to get in the shows out in the hall too so you'll still you know have other company out there too and it's it's fairly open you know, walking between the two, we had people like Ken and Taylor and Amy, You know, disassembling a Model One Hundred in the middle of a hallway. There, now they get to do it on the table. So,
0: right. So, are the new tables where the registration auction? I was are hoping Graham was going to
11: be here to, to let me know specifically where.
0: Because I remember last year, the actual registration was sort of across the hall. It was
11: over here, isn't it? Yeah,
0: exactly. So I wonder if the tables are going along that row. Yeah, because this one appears
11: out, like the main thing for the uh, you know, people in the hotel getting back and forth. This is more to an exit, if I remember correctly. So I, th- I would guess this one, but I don't know. I was hoping he would be here. Uh-huh. But he's lazy. He's almost never on the show. So.
0: Yeah, I have to track him down or <laughs> something.
11: Next one up after that is Boat Fest 3, June 14th, 16th, 2024. The social event space, which is a couple blocks from the venue from the previous two years. And um, this is a general gaming expo that covers retro computers, retro video game systems. Uh, there's even a little bit of handheld and pinball in there, thrown in for good measure. Of course, it's the Amigos, uh, boat Aaron, and Brent, and they have little contests and imported food from overseas and stuff that people get to try. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I know there's a few people from the coke community going again this year, uh, including Ken and myself and a few others that are. Planning on popping by as well. It's a lot, it's a lot of fun. If you watch your show, you know what they're like. It's humorous. Next up after that is uh at the exact same weekend, unfortunately, June 14th, 16th, at the David Gunsey Alumni Center, University of Texas at Dallas is VCF Southwest. And they are having their show within a show this year. They're going to have a tandy assembly. So a lot of the tandy guys will be getting together for a bit of a meetup, kind of like they did in California. Uh, it's not a like an official theme or anything of the entire show. There's a couple of these little shows within a show there. So, um, they've also got uh, Jeff Wires from Chronological Gaming is one of the speakers this year. I haven't checked to see if we've got any more speakers added on. They just had a couple. So if you're into the video game history of all video games, uh, maybe even handled electronic games, including a lot of Coco stuff, he's uh, there's a bunch of them we'll be covering in the gaming news. Um, but he's kind of going through in chronological order hence the name of the channel and uh, that'd be really cool i I would have loved to meet him in person if i could have made it this year i'm going to try to get there next year if i can and hopefully he will do another seminar or maybe i'll even hop on stage with him who knows and then the last one i got is the uh, tandy assembly 2024 september 27th to 29th in springfield ohio at the courtyard by marriott springfield And, um, of course, this is for all Tandy machines. This covers, like, pocket computers, the Model 100 series, the Tandy 1000 series, Cocos, Tercey Model 1, 2, 3, 4, 12, 16, 16B, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that covers all the computers that Tandy made. And uh, the Coco, of course, is a big part of that. And they've already got some of their swag on sale if you want to grab T-shirts, et cetera, there. I don't know if they've got exhibitors or speakers up here yet it's pretty early because the show's quite a few months out that doesn't look like it's so far nope not yet but you know quite a, quite a few months out yet so that's the ones i have listed if you guys have any others that i'm missing that uh, involve the coco uh, please send them um to us at the coco nation show and i'll include them uh and you know mention them every week until the actual event happens That's it for those. Some game on news, I guess, next. Okay. Okay. So first up, uh, there was an interesting question posed by Darren Ottery, who's actually a bit of a game designer himself from Australia. Um, And his question was for the Facebook Coco group. Just for fun, what would be the one game you would wish to be ported to the Coco 3? Let's go with ideas that would work on the real hardware. So don't pick anything like, you know, Afterburner that, you know, pretty well wouldn't be possible. Um, his was Ghosts and Goblins, and he posted a screenshot here. Now, I posted my response to this one, one that I always wish the Coco had had and is quite capable of doing, is Wizard of War. That's a classic, you know, dating from 1980 in the arcade, the same year the Coco 1 came out. Down on the Coco 3, you definitely could do it, even with the voices and, you know, the speech synthesis this chip and some of the great sound effects, etc. The colors, they're all there. It's, you know, not super high-res, super high-color anything like that, so that would be one I would pick. Um... There's been a bunch of suggestions here that I can go over. I might mention a couple like Double Dragon. Here's one. Oregon Trail, which actually got started but never finished. Hero, Keystone Capers, a bunch of others. I was still wondering from the panel and from the people in the chat, what would you guys pick?
5: Ivan Stewart's Off-Road. Which one? Ivan Stewart's Off-Road.
11: Is that an arcade game or another computer?
5: Yeah, arcade, kind of like that Sprint GP overhead style, but more of a 3D and colorful graphics.
11: And you think that would be doable in hardware? I'm not familiar with this game at all, so I have no idea.
5: I'm not sure. I've kind of contemplated. I kind of think it could do it, not as good as the arcade. You know, I think it's a 68000 based. Uh, came a little bit later in the arcades, but I think there, that a version could be done. Of the quality of, say, Rampage or something, you know?
11: Okay. I haven't even heard of that one, so yeah, I'll have to check that out on Claude later. Any other ones from the panel here, especially you game players like Ken and Slippy? I would say
1: any of the TSR Gold Box games.
11: TSR like as pool. in the guys that made Dungeons & Dragons?
1: Yeah, like Pool of Radiance or um, any of those games.
11: Yeah, it would be a good idea. Okay.
10: Sloopy. I would second the uh, Ivan Stewart's Off-Road and uh, Super Sprint.
11: Well, we do have a Super Sprint clone, but it yeah, it definitely could be approved.
0: What the That's Grand Prix Challenge
11: doing? by DICOM.
10: Yeah.
0: What the heck? If we're going 3D, we need Doom.
10: Well, Super Sprint is not 3D. Yeah, Super Sprint's a top view. It's... uh
11: a sequel to an old black and white Atari game actually called just Sprint... What were they called?
10: Yeah. Sprint 6, Print 4, Print 8, depending on how many players it was. Right. And, and that was um, basically a top-view version of uh, Night Driver. Yeah. And Super Sprint was like full-color. It was actually higher-res. It was one of the
11: earlier high-res uh, arcade games. But basically, you have uh, multiple cars competing. You pick up wrenches, so you can you know, juice up your car with better brakes and engines etc and it's got a whole bunch of tracks i think the coco version's got 20 plus tracks i think i got photos of most of them on my my site as well but uh, the gameplay in this one on the coco three version from dicom is quite slow and there's very very little sound effects he wanted to fit in 120k but he was also one of his launch titles for the coco three so he just was starting to learn the hardware so that wasn't as extravagant as some of his later games like say sinistar
10: uh, do you see this uh, blasphemy in the chat from tjb chris
11: uh let's see i'd love to see
0: ghosts and goblins with speech sound pack no he actually wanted to see 64.
10: no the one after that oh well he shuddered so I, that's acceptable
7: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the dark side we have the Sid <laughs> trip <laughs> <laughs>
11: Anyway, uh, if you guys are on Facebook, I would definitely go put some responses here because it might actually, uh, you know, uh, inspire some of the people that write the games these days, like Paul Shoemaker and Paul Thayer and Paul Fiscarelli and Nick Morantese and um, Richard uh, Kelly and a few others there to maybe take a stab at some of them. Because some of the, especially if you want like an older classic arcade game, like late 70s, very early 80s, you might even be able to do that in basic now. Um on the Cocoa Earth Graph Express or something like that that actually gives you some of the faster routines and sprites and that type of thing. So it'd be interesting to see if uh, somebody could pull some of these off these days. Hey, anyway, a lot of suggestions there too. Like I said, I didn't go through anywhere near all of them. It looks like there's been a few new ones added since I checked earlier this morning. So uh, if you have any suggestions yourself, please go on to that particular post. You can get the post link directly from the show notes that are published on the Discord. Uh, Next up, Rick Adams has gone back to revisit Shanghai. Now, based on the original discs, we had found out quite a while ago that uh, the dragon that appears and breathes fire when you win the game had to be greatly truncated because Tandy at the time insisted that it fit on a 16K ROM, not a 32K ROM. And uh, so he's been kind of going through and making the disc version with that, you know, obviously has more room. And he's got the dragon quite a bit bigger, as you can see in the screenshot here. Now, I have seen in Discord, I think, since this, he's actually published it even further. He's got almost the entire original dragon on there now. And I think Paul Frescarelli has now joined in on that, thinks he can get the entire dragon, plus the... Title screen, because I mean the, the title screen on the current Shanghai is uh, basically just the word Shanghai and then some sample tiles. The original one actually had the dragon within this big circular, almost Celtic-looking... Uh, Surrounding things. You lost your
4: mic there, of course.
0: Yeah, while you plug your mic back in, I have a question. If (laughs) if they changed the graphic to a two color (laughs) graphic halfway down, would there be room for it to fit then? Sorry, what was that? The the graphic starts as a four color graphic. If it changed to a two color graphic halfway through the screen, would it then fit? And couldn't that magic be done? It just. You mean like time and interrupt to switch to well, display modes? Well, because it's 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 as big as it is because it's four colors, but it only actually needs it's to
11: it's the it flames alone are six.
0: Oh, okay, that's already separate. Never mind.
11: <laughs> but like I said, uh, uh, since he's actually basing this new version on disk, where you don't have sixteen k or thirty two k of restrictions you here, you have one hundred fifty k. They're they're working to get the original title screen, et cetera. I think once they get that all done, I'm going to approach Bill Noble because who's the one who did the original port of Shanghai for os9, and then Alan DeCock added in like programmable tile sets and stuff. Is that we might as well incorporate all these things into the Nitrous Nine one too, and include that, then you'll get the full game as you know Rick originally wanted to do. But it's, it's cool. It's kind of revisiting that game that he did, you know, so long ago, and is you know getting it back to what he originally envisioned for it before you got told, nope, 16 k's is as much we're going to let you use here, because you want to keep the cost of the cartridge down. Uh, next up, Chronological Gaming, which has been going through September of 1982, and now he's doing all the ones that they don't have specific dates, but there's a bunch of Cocoa ones in here. <clears throat> and I because we do have a hard out here, I'm not going to go through all of them. There's some Dragon ones here, too. So I'm just going to rattle off a few, and if you guys want to see any of them in person, just let me know. Um... Most of these, I think, most of us are familiar with. <clears throat> the first one here, you can see the uh, title on the screen. Here, it's called Devil's Triangle, and it's a text adventure game for the uh, Dragon Thirty Two by Abacus Software. And it's just a text adventure, so I'm not going to play any of that because it's kind of boring to watch. Um, mm-hmm. And then one that Ken Waters said uh, just you know it goes straight to his heart. He just loves this game, Frog Trek. You remember the one, Ken? <laughs> are you still here? Yes, I love that game.
9: <laughs> i can hear the sarcasm
11: i'd like to how, how, how did he like it oh he i think he he liked it far less than you did <laughs> it was quite funny watching the chat people you know discuss that game as he was trying to play it i had to explain to him like when you're trying to jump on a, a turtle or whatever you have to jump below because the hit boxes are off by four pixels or whatever he was just flabbergasted this ever got released. <laughs> it is, it's It's a fun review to watch. Not a fun game to play.
1: I'll have to check that out. At least <laughs> some fun will come out of Frog Trek. Right.
11: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere. And the fact that, you know, it only starts scrolling things as you get near them. And then they start start scrolling as you get further across. And, you know, just. But it was the. He mentioned this, actually. It was one of the first. What well, was the first frog? Uh, Frogger clone on the Cocoa period first version of Frogger, and it's one of the earliest out of every, you know, home machine at the time, so it was, a you know, an attempt, I guess. Uh, the other one mentioned on this episode was Galactic Attack, the card just from Radio Shack, which is kind of a, a Galaxian, though it adds in the night bombing thing and the fact that the entire swarm can h- attack you at once in flight, uh, but that's only up to eight creatures, you know, whereas a regular Galaxian is quite a few more, so I kind of consider it a junior version. Uh, Next up, he did um, one that actually had both the Apple II version, Dung Beetles, and then immediately followed by Megabug. Some of those, you've not seen both versions here. You can actually see what the difference is. So I'll play a little bit of this because it's just interesting from a historical context.
3: So we're looking at Dung Beetles here on the Apple. Way better. Like the other titles that that, that have taken the Pac-Man maze game and then made it really fun that you want to learn the new way. But this one, uh, it's... It's, it's a little rough going. Okay, we got another one coming this way.
9: Oh, a bit the oh.
3: It's Megabug for the TRS-80 color computer. If you look in the gameplay, that's it. We're, we're, we're playing the same. And there's our cartridge of Megabug.
11: Went through the entire manual on this one, so we'll skip that.
3: All right, now uh, are
11: we doing it? Now, the Cocoa version yeah. seems to be a bit shrunk because we had a little bit less horizontal resolution and it okay, plays a little bit slower. <clears throat> and I will mention the Apple version yeah, does the have the Wii thing. Gotcha and, there, and the Cucaracha song in it, it too. So you're in.
3: I love that. They're
11: quite close it's like to you're each
3: right other. The arcade. You don't need to mess around with the keyboard. Okay, so now we're in for real.
11: Now, have, have any of you guys on the panel, I've, I'm assuming most of us have played Megabug at some point. It was one of the most popular games by Steve. Um, have any of you played the Apple version or some of the other versions? I think there's also an Atari
10: 8-bit version. And they all had different names for some stupid reason. I've played it on the Apple. It seemed pretty similar, but I was also using the keyboard, whereas on the uh, Coco, I was using the joystick.
11: Yeah, and on both platforms, it actually allows both sets of controls. You can play joystick or keyboard. Yeah. They're, they're pretty close to each other. I, I don't think there's too much of a difference, except that the screen's a bit narrower, and so it's slightly slower on the Coco. Whereas, you know, the speech was a bit easier to understand, et cetera. So, you know, six of one and half a dozen of the other type thing.
14: I thought it was called um, Dung Beetles on the Apple II. It is. Oh, okay. Yeah.
11: And on the Atari, it's called something else again. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Do you remember Slippy? No, I don't. I'll have to look it up again. But yeah, um, for some reason, Datasoft took the exact same game and named it differently on every platform. It might be bugs. Yeah, I think that is correct. And I don't know why they did that. That just boggles me. Anyway, that's that episode. Another one here. They had uh, four Coco and Dragon games on this one. So the first one is Microbes, which is actually uh, Spectral Associates took their Color Meteoroids from 1981 that they sold independently, got it rebranded with uh, Tandy themselves to sell as Microbes in September of 82, and actually changed the gameplay a little bit. Uh, compared to the original one, and he was quite enamored with the dual joystick control option because there's three different modes you can play. You can play keyboard on this too, but there's two different modes as far as the joysticks, and it's an asteroids clone basically. But it requires two joysticks, and so a lot of people kind of go, "What the heck do you need two joysticks for for asteroids?" Well, the thing is, the one um, joystick controls the flight of the ship, so you aim in the direction. It's analog, so you can go in you know multiple directions, not just in you know eight you know eight directions or something like that. The second joystick controls the spin of the gun. So you can actually fire in completely different directions than you're actually flying in. And now that's really hard to do with one person myself. When I've tried it, I don't have the coordination to do that type of thing. But if you have two players, one's controlling the gun and one's controlling the flight of the ship to dodge asteroids, that's a lot of fun. That's actually something I think we should do at Cocoa Fest or something is let people try that. If they've never tried that before, we're having one, one guy's the gunner. One is the actual flight guy and actually try playing it that way. There's a few Coco games I think this would actually work out fairly well on, but this is actually one that kind of reminded me of that idea. What do you guys think? Have you guys, first of all, ever played it using the the dual joystick control option or uh, played it with a friend or a brother or something like that?
0: I like it. You get to to double up your quarters. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Kind of of the idea of Starfighter? You got a navigator and a
11: uh, gunner.
0: Yeah, yep. I like it. Yeah,
11: pretty I like much. I, don't know, I I find it a lot of fun, and I, I did like the tweaks they made. I think Tandy did specify a few changes that Spectral had to do from the original colored meteoroids two years or, or from a year earlier, and I think they actually did improve it a bit. So, uh, Other ones mentioned in this particular episode are Mission Empire, which is, if you're familiar with the Galactic Saga, made famous on the Model 1 and the Apple like Galactic Empire, Galactic Traitor, etc. It's kind of based on that. It's a low-res version, but basically the same type of gameplay where you basically try to conquer the surrounding galaxy and star systems by sending ships and taxing and all kinds of stuff. Offender, which is Greg Zumwalt's, uh, one of his earlier machine language games, I think his second one, after Packet Man, it's kind of a defender. There's no mountains. It's actually got little buildings. But you do have, you know, people to rescue and you do, you know, have all the different types of ships to shoot and stuff. Um... Just straight black and white, though. It's a P mode four. No artifacting on that one. And the other one is uh a racer ball. I see I spelt that wrong in the notes. Whoops. Uh, which is actually a reskin of Ghost Gobbler from Spectral for the Dragon and for the UK uh cocos. And I'm guessing they had to do this because of maybe complaints of copyright by this point. Um, so they reskinned it and tried to make it sound like it's a space game or something, which is just silly for. <laughs> a, like a pac-man clone but uh show it here for those of you who are not familiar with it
3: hey if they could do it for temple of well, rom they could do
11: it for city anything
3: computer here's a <laughs> racer <laughs> ball racer ball is from the united kingdom so this one is you can see it from the box racer ball is the tr city color computer with a u released by Microdeal in the united kingdom with an example of the screenshot that already gave it away so this one uh i really don't want to play it on this system because we really should do it justice. This this is only in the United Kingdom when this came out and we should be playing on this computer from the United Kingdom. We really should be playing Racerball on the Dragon 32. So it's pretty much the same system, you know, the the UK formula. So let's check out Racerball on the Dragon 32. Starting with the box. Here's the cassette case, Racerball. Now, I know sometimes they had mm, a little blurb in
11: the corner as to what platform it's for. They used to have the Coco and the Dragon listed simultaneously, but they actually
3: made separate runs of the artwork here for both. And the original one here, the original first run by Mike it's very plain looking. ...on the moon base, but avoid any laseroids that keep coming in the airlock. And then you flip over the back of the box, or the inside sleeve, I mean. So this is how to load the game and how to play the game. Very nice with a cassette cape case. Uh, yeah, fast forward a little bit of gameplay itself. So laser will remain scared for a while. I built in
11: directions, time, which the spectral the version the did board board not. Uh, the Ghost the Gobbler on. one, I should say.
3: There it is. We're in. I'm going to bring it. has got a little. Tr- but same sound like effects, same maze.
11: Just basically the Pac Man <laughs> and the ghosts have changed into semi science yeah, so fictional like
3: shapes. A re-skinned ghost gobbler. Oh, there Even the little teleporter tunnel still in it. Teleported the top.
11: I'm sure 6C has played this one. Okay. Next one, uh, next episode he did, he covered Roman Checkers. He was quite impressed because there's been quite a few Othello, uh, Reverse Eye, whatever you want to call the game, clones on various machines. But he was very impressed with the uh, the interface in this one in particular. Because uh, if you you can play with keyboard or joystick, but on the joystick it actually lets you not only select where you're placing, but has a little menu on the right of symbols and letters to do various things. And uh, you can actually control everything with the joystick, which had not been done on any of the previous versions on different platforms up to this point. And uh, this is an image producer's game uh, that uh, we talked a little bit out during our interview with the inter- producers way, way, way back in the early history of the show. And uh, if you like that type of game, it's actually quite a well done one. There's multiple skill levels. You can play versus the computer versus human You can have t- two computer players play each other. If you just want to watch a demo version of the game, it's got some you know semi decent sound effects and stuff. Uh, You can set up the board if you want to, like, you know, record on paper or something where you left off and then come back and reset it back up again in case you had to shut the computer off. And, uh, you know, it's got a fairly extensive manual. There's quite a bit of stuff to it. It's a fairly extensive version of Othello at the time. I won't play it because I mean, Othello's kind of boring to watch, but. And then the next one here was Shooting Gallery. This is another one where you did back to back. because There's two versions of Shooting Gallery. Now, this one here, you know, kept the same name at least, and actually the uh, the graphics are fairly close to each other again. There's a little bit of a difference here. So this is the Atari 8-bit version we're looking at here. Sleepy, I'm sure you're familiar with this game. If he's by his mic. Apparently not. Um, but basically, this one looks very close. I mean, there's a bit more color on the um, Atari version because of course they had better you know, hardware than we did, though using some of the extra artifact colors that Erico likes using, the Cocoa version actually has more colors than you would normally expect on this type of game too. But I did notice that the shape on the bottom is elephants, and that's not the same as the Cocoa. So they did take a little bit of poetic license and do a little bit different here. Other than that, like the ducks, the rabbits, this face, the space, the Atari has a really nice animation on the face where the face actually rotates around. So I'll
10: just uh, unmute the sound here. Yeah, there were many different um, shooting gallery-like games for the Atari 8-bit.
11: Yeah, like Clones of Carnival and... Yeah.
14: Yeah, the face animation is really yeah. good.
0: Yeah, the evil... not evil face.
11: Yeah, it kind of like rotates around <clears throat> where ours just blinks in and out. So fast forward to the Coco one we both have the same multi-voice music backgrounds. Um, for setting it up. But you see here, like if you take a look, like uh, even the curtains and then the diamonds where you get your extra bullets to the top, they are using the, the cross hatch technique to get some of the extra colors, the bit of the yellows, the purples and stuff we didn't normally see too often in, in Cocoa games. So it's one of the better uses of color. Um, I prefer the analog control myself having played both versus the digital stick. Uh, but I have to say, the uh, the Atari one plays smoother, and uh, the animation on the face is definitely a big improvement over what we got here, just changing between the two different faces themselves. But, I mean, by the time this came out, I mean, the original Carnival in the arcade was, what, 79 or 80 or something like that? So, this was already an old arcade game by the time the Cocoa one came out, never mind when the game came out, so... <laughs> And then uh, another one that he showed on this episode, and this has got a bit of controversy to it. I don't know if you guys have seen it because it was only advertised for a slight bit of time, like literally a couple months. And that's... Uh, let me see if I wait till he zooms it in here. Snack Pack by Tomix Software. So you can see here, and this, this only existed in september and october maybe november of 82 and then it suddenly got yanked and there's i think a good reason for this now unfortunately i've not been able to contact people directly involved with this to get the full story but if you guys remember the very first pac-man clone that coco ever got was computerware's pack attack in early 1981 and that was a semi-graphics 24 game snack pack is a reskin version of that in p mode 4 with artifacting so the graphics look a lot better but the sound routines the maze is absolutely identical and computerware i don't think would have let tom mix have the option of giving the artifact color version of their game under a different name uh with everything else being identical so i suspect that somebody kind of Hacked into the ComputerWare one, reskinned it to look enough different that at first glance you wouldn't tell it's the same game, until you actually played it. and The sound effects and everything are identical, and then try got Tomix to sell it briefly, and then I think ComputerWare came after them and said, "No, you're not, you're not selling this because that's our game." And then ComputerWare themselves came out with Pack Attack Two, where they actually did four color artifacting and reskinned it too, but they did do a few other changes on top of it. So this game was only on the market for a couple months, literally, and then disappeared forever. So, I'm suspecting there was a bit of tomfoolery going around out there. Um,
0: (laughs) That's entirely not the copyright strike I would have expected.
11: Yeah, no, it's a bit of a strange story. (laughs) It says that this version is set like his copy doesn't have a title screen. It had some weird startup issues. Mine doesn't. Mine actually has a title screen with animations and the whole bit. It said it was by Larry Banks. Now, Larry's more famous for doing educational software on the Cocoa. He did some stuff. uh, well, he did some stuff at Tandy they did some stuff that some of the third-party educational titles that were fairly big on cross-platforms did like the pond and stuff like he helped write some of those so he was a capable programmer in his own right I don't know if he actually is the one that did this because that means he reskinned somebody else's game and then tried to make money off of it and I I, I just don't see somebody doing educational software as being that much of a blatant pirate <laughs> and then try to like you know, soak money off of it too so I'm suspecting it might have been done with somebody else and they just threw the guy's name in his you know
0: a copy hack type thing, right? Right, fake, fake legitimacy.
11: Yeah, like this part here. This is where I had snack pack by Larry Banks, Copper 19 Atomic Software with a rotating marquee, and he just got a white screen. So I don't know where he got his copy from, but if you guys are familiar with Pack Attack, or you can take a look at my site if you want to, the maze is absolutely identical. And then the sound effects, which I'll let play in a little bit here, are absolutely identical. The only real difference between, besides going to P-Mode 4 instead of SimiGraphics 24, is that the fruits actually change because the original pack deck just had one apple with a bite out of it. Um, you red and yellow, I think if I remember red for the apple and yellow for the stem or something like that. This one actually rotates through different ones. Like the second one after the apple is a birthday cake. So they actually did do a little bit of additions to it. But otherwise, it's like if you are familiar with Pac-Tac, the sound effects
3: are pretty unique, and you'll you'll definitely recognize it. It's like an upgraded version of Pac-Tac that we've already played. It actually resembles Pac-Man too. Let's go ahead and pick up our power pellet. Oh, and they turn to sad faces. (laughs) (laughs) Cool sound effect. So, did you guys hear that (whistles) "wee" type thing? That's that's Pac-Tac exactly. Too long though. I'm going to have to save it till the end.
11: So yeah, I'd like to get the full story behind where this came from and who sold it to Tom Mix and you know, how the negotiations between Computerware and Tom Mix happened after that. that would make a fascinating interview, I think. All anyway, right, that's the Cocoa Games he covered. There's still a few more coming um, this next week uh, to finish out September, because now he's roughly going alphabetically in the S's now. There's some more Cocoa Games for 82 that will be coming out on there. Um... I think I actually have a list. I don't know exactly what days they will be on in particular. But uh, he should still be seeing wildcatting, tennis. Um, he might mention wet t-shirt contest, which is a risque text adventure. He did mention Madame Rosa's massage parlor, which is another one that was on the Tuesday, tier- Model 1, 3, and the Coco. Uh, but he doesn't play adult games on his channel. So he just mentioned it kind of in passing. And then uh, that'll be the rest of the ones with the cocoa for September. And then in October, which should be coming up over later in February, we'll see the uh, games like uh, Colorpede and Protectors from Tomix and Rail Runner and Donkey Monkey and Starfire and a few others there too. So some pretty cool games coming up. And to round out the game on news, we've got a couple from Jim Gary. I know I'm just as surprised as the rest of you that uh, he converted some stuff to the MC10 this week. Wow. Who would have thought? <laughs> but uh, he did some pretty interesting ones this time. Uh, the first one here that you're seeing on the screen at the moment. I'm not going to try to pronounce the French part. Uh, Frederick, if you're here, if you can read that and pronounce it in
9: pr- proper French, feel free. Sure. Uh, I'm looking at the screen, but. This part over here. Okay. castet dans le métro, puzzle in metro. Okay. It's it's a puzzle on the metro. It says right there. And it's after the slide. Yeah, no, I was just wondering how to pronounce with all these uh, little. Castette. Okay.
11: Because when you start putting an ease with little funny accents and stuff, I have yeah. no idea how to say it.
9: metro, c'est metro. The metro. Okay.
11: So this is actually a low-res graphical adventure text game. Um so you can see an you know, actual little sample here. You can see like you know, buildings and stuff like that. Uh, a little person sitting there, which they describe in the text areas. There's a man sitting in a booth. So it's actually kind of, you know, almost like a Sands of Egypt style game, but in low-res and, and for the MC-10. Now, this one was originally written in 1985 by Eric Asherberg for the uh, the Metro Alice 32 and 90. And then Jim uh, ported it over, translated it from French to English, and uh, it actually looks like a pretty decent little game. It's got some pure text parts here that you get into, and then it'll actually skip to uh, some different graphics. Let me see if can find another one where he loads in the screen originally. You get people you can interact with too, which I can see if I can find. There's a little classroom type thing. So you have a few characters to interact with, too. So I thought that was kind of a neat way to use the semi-graphics that are built in the MC-10, you know, without needing extra cards and updated ROMs, et cetera. And this would have been a fun one to play back in the day on MC-10, too.
5: And then the second Looks one like he ported Lego. this week... Sorry, go ahead. Looked like a Lego person. Yeah.
11: Uh, The second one he got here is uh, a German game. And this is actually a German board game originally uh, known as Ludo. And this is another one he had to port and translate uh, from German to English. This original version was in German. And it translates to, hey, man, don't get angry. And it's. uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the game exactly is, but this was originally actually published for the Laser Dick Smith VZ or VZ. 200 computer in 1988, so fairly late on the VZ200, but the... or VZ200, but the VZ200, if I remember, that's one of the ones I think that used the same VDG chip as the Cocoa, but it was a, a Z80, Z80-based CPU versus the uh, 6800 series. And, um, basically you roll dice, you do your moves, it's got a little, you know, picture of the dice here, it's got a little picture of the board, and then you kind of jump the pegs and go around and, you know, try... try. My, I don't really understand the game, so I'm not exactly sure what your mission is here, but... Uh, Apparently it's fairly popular in Germany. And that ends the game on news. So on to the regular news. I don't know if you want to play the flaming hair bit first, Mark.
4: Um <laughs> yeah, sure. Let me get back over to my control panel and push this button.
0: When you want the latest in TRS-80, Tandy, Dragon, MC10 and all of their hardware cousins. No matter what it takes or where news breaks from around the world to your nation. The Cocoa Nation News with L. Curtis
2: Boyle.
11: Okay, so Retro Computing Roundtable. And unfortunately, I missed this one in person because I usually try to, to catch their show because it's usually once every few weeks or a month or something. It's kind of at random when everybody can actually make it. Um, but they were covering a, a story here about uh, a person that is doing a, a kind of like Frederick's doing, actually making their own computer, um, basically. And uh, the person here was trying to do a 6502 homebrew project. And the ultimate goal they wanted to do is to make a 6502 machine that would actually play LoadRunner, Runner, which is, of course, originally an Apple II game. And the the method they went to get source code for LoadRunner Runner in order to port it to this with the hardware that they included on this machine actually has an involvement with the cocoa 3. Now, if you guys remember a few years back, or maybe even longer than that now, um. There was a transcode of the Apple II version of load Runner done by an Australian programmer, Mark uh, McDougal, I think his name is. Um, right. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Um, which is, you know, like any of the other transcodes, it plays identical to the Apple version because it's actually the Apple source code translated from 6.5.2.6.7.9. So he was trying to find source code for Loadrunner itself, and he couldn't find for the 6502 the original version for the Apple, et cetera. So he actually found Marks and then transcoded it back to the 6502 for his own project, which is one of the most convoluted routes I've ever seen for doing a port of something to its you know original CPU. So I'll play a little bit of that, just gonna get a bit of history around it. But uh
16: So this is uh one that came across my feed uh, from a fellow named Eric Badger. And on, this, on the stream here we have a uh, a video of it that I'll scrub through and show you some highlights. But the, uh, so what I love about this is that uh, this project could be possibly called Chips to Load Runner because uh, he starts with building a breadboard 6502 based computer as many of us do. And he ends up with something that plays LoadRunner, Runner, uh, <laughs> which is a pretty amazing journey. And the other thing I love about this is that it's very cross, uh, it's very brand agnostic, let's say he actually brings in a lot of stuff from different retro computers to make this work. So he starts with a uh, a Ben Eater 6502 breadboard computer kit, uh, which is uh, a good excuse to talk about Ben Eater's kits, because they're awesome. Uh, So he has a kit where you can build a 6502 computer on a breadboard. And what you end up with is the basic, the most minimal 6502 computer that everyone builds to start with, which has RAM and a little bit of ROM and a little LCD display in a serial port, and you can just kind of uh, watch it execute code and uh, display memory addresses or whatever, but that's all it'll do. Uh, so he starts with that. Uh, and then he upgrades it with a more modern interface chip. Uh, so uh, as many people probably know, you can still buy 6502s from Western Design Center and they have more modern interface chips that you can connect to it, more modern than the like the uh, 6551 was that the chip that gave you sort of basic IO on the 6502. Uh, There are more modern versions of that chip that give you more sophisticated IO, and he used that to get a serial port going and uh, from there he actually uh, brought in Was's monitor from the Apple II. So uh, the, there's a block of code called Wasmon, which is a 256 byte block, which basically implements Was's raw monitor in a very, very compact way. So that allows you to display memory and read and write memory over the serial port. Uh, so that's super useful. And then from there, he added BASIC. And uh, so BASIC, for that, he went to, uh, well, it's a little side quest into video here, but for the basic he went to, to microsoft basic and he ended up implementing what uh, is ultimately a, a version of the pet basic that seemed to be the easiest one to port in his efforts so he gets pet basic in there and from there he wants to get load runner working so there's a bunch of stuff about trying to get video going and as anyone who's ever built a retro computer knows uh, getting video going is of course the most difficult part so there's a lot of conversation in this video about the challenges of getting the CPU and the video scanner to talk to the same memory at the same time. That's certainly the thing that derailed me on my homebrew computer for uh, a couple of years, actually was figuring out good ways to do that. It turns out to be quite difficult. Uh, so he battles with that. And when it comes time to finally port LoadRunner, uh, again, he goes through and looks at all of the different implementations of LoadRunner. It existed on many, many platforms and he ends up landing on uh, a coco 3 port of it someone ported the original apple II load runner to the coco 3 and had all of the source code for that and so he ported uh he started with the coco 3 6502 port uh and ported it to uh, to his machine and uh, doesn't does eventually get it running and anyway so
11: anyway that's got to be the most convoluted thing because it was originally written in 6502 couldn't find source code for that. So he found the 689 transcode and then transcoded it back to 6502 again. That's just mind blowing.
9: Yeah, that must be a hard thing to do. I mean, if he used all those nifty little instructions and registers, going back to the 6502 is going to be a nightmare.
0: Well, yeah, cause the Indian changes, so everything yeah. flips. Yeah, Well, I haven't looked
11: at Mark McDougall's code, which is available on the web, by the way, if people want to take a look at it. But I don't know if he did a strict transcode where basically you just translated the instructions verbatim like the Rescue and Fractals game did. It didn't use any of the more advanced features that you could have used to make it you know, run more efficiently or take less RAM or run faster or whatever. So if he just did a strict transcode, then it wouldn't be that hard going back. But if he did a transcode and improved upon, then yeah, you're right. That would be a bear's butt going the other direction. Because you you, know, you have extra registers and 16 bit registers and stuff that you don't have on the 6502. You
0: have to crunch back out again. Yeah. Yeah.
11: But you know, beggars can't be choosers. That was the only source code he could actually find based on the original. And he he got it to work. This this project took a while, but he did do it. I just thought it was fascinating, just going back through two different transcodes to get it back to the original CPU. I've never heard of that happening before. So that was cool. And a big shout out to Mark, because he did a really good job on the load runner. Yeah, transcode. We, we we normally think of transcodes of being all the arcade stuff like you know Donkey Kong by Sockmaster and Glenn Hewlett, of course, has done Joust and Robotron Defender, but it's all been arcade stuff. Uh we kind of forget sometimes that people have transcoded from other computer platforms as opposed to arcade games or video game consoles. So uh this is one of those cases where it's transcoded right from a you know six five two Apple two code right to the six seven nine and and then in this case back again. Mm. Speaking of Glenn Hewlett, <laughs> he published a web blog, and this is the first time he's published one in a while here, but he was uh, going through doing game sprite detection in assembly, and he discovered some really cool routines, he thought, in the way that Robotron did it. And he kind of discovered this while transcoding, but he decided to write up an article on it. Now, I'm not going to get completely in the weeds here about what it's describing, but basically, most of the time, if you want to do fast... Uh, you just check for a bounding box. You basically check the rectangle of the graphics, whether the graphics at a particular corner is active or not, which is why sometimes hitboxes on games suck. Um, if you want to do it pixel by pixel, you can do that, too, where you can actually check to see if certain pixels are crossing over and if the right colors to count is a crossover. But then, of course, that's much slower. So what he does here, uh, going through the Robotron code, it's kind of using a combination of both. It tests to see if the binding boxes of each sprite are overlapping on the screen, first of all. And if it doesn't, well, then I can skip all the bit-by-bit comparisons. And then if it does, then you start going in the section at the top of the sprite and test to see if overlapping pixel sprite are on top of each other. Um, so basically, it's combining the coarse version of it to do speed and skip all the ones that you don't have to bother testing for. And then you go in and start doing the fine detailed ones only if there's a good potential that those things are overlapping. So it doesn't take as much speed to, you know, as much time CPU time to actually do a proper check, where you're doing a pixel by pixel based collision, uh so that you're not getting players mad at you because you got within five pixels of a completely blank spot of the sprite that actually isn't really touching your shape, but it says now nah, you hit it, you died. So basically, he goes in through a, you know, a description here. He actually uses some, like you know sample graphics from the Galaga, etc. Here and sample of simulated like source code including some little tables and stuff he set up so if you want to kind of see a cool way to do it and this is the way the robotron arcade game did it itself it's a pretty fascinating article ken i'm going to mute this here you did some uh digital archaeology on color computer discs so first of all i guess uh what is that and what did you find
1: well that's just basically going through a bunch of discs and seeing if i can find any really cool stuff um So I just chose a few discs out of the, I don't know, maybe 175 Cocoa discs that I have sitting behind me and just started going through them. And uh, I managed to shave everything down to a half hour show, but I probably could have gone on for a couple hours on this. It would have been like uh, the news, putting everybody to sleep, but.
11: We we live to serve. (laughs) (laughs)
1: um I, I those discs um they got donated to me by Sheldon McDonald back uh well through Curtis actually yeah the the same guy that I got the uh banker board two fifty six K uh Coco 2 from so yeah I tried to stick as much as I could to uh games that were on these discs so
11: now, did you just go through a certain number of discs, or is that actually going through 170? You pared it down. Oh before? God, no! I went through five discs. This, this,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did. I got uh, about six and a half hours of footage out of going through five discs. So, I figured that was enough.
11: So, and, do you plan uh, on finishing going through those discs, or is there, are you, have you had enough digital archaeology for your lifetime?
1: Uh, no, I'll probably go through a bunch more. But uh, you know, it's very time consuming, obviously, because you're. Loading up each and every <clears throat> program on there, and
11: now you you did um, find a couple of games you had not seen before, or didn't think you'd seen before, and then you also found a few that uh, looked like, as you put it, they might have been converted from something else, and we're still running at forty column or eighty column or something.
2: Now um, I do oh,
1: go ahead. well. There's a whole bunch of uh, text games on or uh, basic games on here that are all from this uh, 101 games book, which I think all of the. Um, Changeovers on them are for the Model 1 and 3, because the Model 1 and 3, correct me if I'm wrong, has a much Uh, larger screen.
0: Well, so even 80 columns, you can't do print at like you can on a Model 3.
1: Yeah, so these are meant for an 80 column, 32 row
11: screen or whatever. So. Now there's two possibilities here for me knowing Sheldon. First of all, he started on Tier City Model One. He still actually has that Sheldon
1: actual. did comment on the video and he said, Yeah, he prob- that was probably what he was doing. He typed all these in and had intended to uh port them
11: over, but was never never got around to it. Well, I'm not so sure on that. <clears throat> he had one program on there you tried to load it too. It was called WP. Yeah. There was some high-res screen drivers that you could buy. There's like screen 64s, uh Super screen machine. There's a whole bunch. Is the solution? There's a dozen of them. <clears throat> some of those did patch basic to accept print ads up to whatever screen resolution their graphic screen did. So a lot of them did forty-two by twenty-one. Some did fifty-one by twenty-four. Um, the one from Intellicons went to sixty-four by thirty-two. Some of them did. You know, they're at. They added new commands like a locate x comma y, kind of like the Cobra Three did. But some mm-hmm. of them actually did patch print that to work up to like 0 to 10, 12, 24 or something. And that WP program might have been one of those meant for a 64K machine. And what most 64K programs like that did was they load themselves at the absolute highest part of RAM. Now on a Coco3, that's vector page RAM. That's how BASIC actually figures out how to switch between high-res screens and 40 and 80 columns and stuff. And if you overload that, you basically just crash BASIC completely.
2: Okay, so I remember
1: you're if, saying
11: are I should try that on one of my Coco 2s? <laughs> yes. The, the WP program itself might run then, and if it is one of those drivers for that, then it should actually put itself up at the top of RAM, kick the Cocoa into a mode 4 screen with its own font, and then okay. the print ads will actually run, I think. So be worth trying. Oh, I, if, if it doesn't work, I will try to figure out which one of the screen drivers actually supported print at extensions, because not all did. Some did locate instead but some did do it. I've actually fiddled with them back in the, over the years, so you probably could get those running properly. Okay.
1: Well, as uh Sheldon said he did, didn't remember. He remembered that he had typed all those games in but didn't remember what he did with them.
11: Yeah. I just found it suspicious cuz the, the the disk that you found that particular, you know, text adventure games or text games on you did have the, that same WP program and it did crash and I was going, "I bet you that's probably okay. I know what's
0: going on."
11: And then you did find a couple games, but I think they're all basic, is that correct? Um, yeah. So I did find a uh a blackjack
1: game or a not a blackjack game, a uh jacks or better game that uh Sheldon had written Then that uh space game that was just on the screen which I'd never seen before which looks like somebody had tried to make it as a commercial game because it's got the whole intro screen and song and then distri- a dis- distribution name by the company that made it. And.
11: Okay, so I'll have to see if I can hunt that one down. That one's not on my site. I've never seen it before. Either.
1: No, I. it's not on the archive. It's not on your site. So I've never seen it before.
2: Cool. But it is just a I, I,
11: basic game. Yeah. yeah. I, I will mention that Sheldon, like I did... Briefly go through those just before I gave them to you, <clears throat> but I was looking specifically for machine language games that you know might have been missing from the archives and from my own collection. And I did find a few, uh, Brit Monk's, uh, Avalon Hill game gauntlet, the 4k, one of the very few 4k machine language games, uh, was actually one of the ones that Sheldon had that I had never had before. And now she's now on the archive now on my site. So big thank okay. you to Sheldon, uh, for that one. If you're going to try to run that one, you definitely will have to run raw though because it'll load it right over top disk unless you want to copy to cassette first. Okay. Um, Quest three, I think that one I/O Air, isn't this the disk that had the I/O Because that was one that actually yeah. I have seen ads for, but I don't have the game, so unfortunately,
1: <clears> yeah, <throat> that disk would not load anything that was larger than a one sector game. Any, any, any of the games that were larger, it would uh, I/O Air.
11: Okay. Yep. Um, if I can make a request, if you can bring a couple of the discs that look like they have something interesting, but do get the IORs, if okay. you can bring them down to the fest and then we'll get David, uh, to bring the grease weasel again.
6: Grease we- okay. Sure. We'll bring see if we can actually read again. them off. What was that? Oh, I was just being a smart, butt. I was just saying, oh sure. Bring me into this again.
1: Absolutely. Oh, it's a floppy you know, disk. What do you expect? Yeah.
6: What, what do you expect
11: here? You're, you're our local resident expert on floppy disks. Right.
1: You need to know how what to plan your time for? at the fest. Well, you know, um, David could just send me a grease weasel.
0: Now That would work too, right? Oh, yeah. And a David Ladd brain, and then you'll have it made.
11: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it'd be good because it'd be nice to try to recover.
1: It was actually only the one game, the one um one disk so far? One disk that I found that was uh, giving me the IO errors, so.
11: Yeah, because it would be interesting to see, like, uh, Quest 3, there was a, a sequel to Quest that everybody put out for 32K machines specifically that I do not have a copy of. I have the original one, but I don't have the, the revised one, but apparently they added a whole bunch of stuff to it from
1: the ads. And then one of the things that I really liked that I found was that 3D disk that had a whole bunch of oh, right. yeah 3D graphics. The- Um, that's just a, I don't know what that was. It's loaded up a different, uh, a red screen to take the place of the green screen. So,
11: yeah, I think for black and white TV users, it actually worked better.
1: Although it did, it changed a bit. Like it changed the, um, the, uh, top of the screen, what it said, and it changed the, uh, cursor
11: input thing. Okay. Yeah, this 3D thing, like this was a version I'd not seen before. I have seen the one that Hot Cocoa published, I think, in their third or fourth issue called Display. And you can just find up to 26 points, and then 26 connecting lines in, in x y z space. And then you can you can pan them left and right, up, down. You can rotate them on all three axes. You can zoom them in and out. And then you can, you know, create stuff like this. The only game I remember on the Coco that actually used this type of an engine, I think was space Wreck by Spectre, which is kind of a clone of the star Trek simulator arcade game.
1: Well, um, um basically all of the uh, programs that I found on this disc say that they're from the Durham computer club.
11: So Durham, Ontario, I have no idea. And I was, I was curious, like, uh, obviously these are running, you know, fairly complex ones so that are running pretty slow. Did you try the running this at the Coco three double speed? No, I did not. Because I think it would probably run a lot smoother that way. And then I'll try it on the Gimme X with you know triple speed. <laughs> anyway, yeah, go check a- out Ken's video. He's got a a, a cool explanation of what digital archaeology is. And then, you know, kind of live demoing it. And then, and then it's just so fun if you pick up a disc collection at an auction or, like, say, the one at Coco Fest. <clears throat> and there will be some discs on there. Um, or, you know, pick it up in an estate sale or just from a collector that you've met online or through eBay or whatever. It's kind of fun going through some of the discs. Sometimes you find absolute gems you've never heard of before.
1: And sometimes you find some really weird stuff.
11: (laughs) 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 And probably some stuff you wish you could scratch your eyeballs out and never see again. Right, never see again. Uh, Okay, next up, the uh, 13th edition of the Basic 10-liner contest was announced this past week. And it's got, of course, the multiple subcategories. And this is for you basic programmers out there. They've got the... uh, This is the uh, translation. The actual main thing is run by a guy in Germany. So the initial instructions are all in German. And then he kind of translates it to English here. So you've got the pure 80, which means a maximum of 80 characters per line. Uh, The pure 120, maximum 120 characters per line. The extreme, 256. No more than 256 characters per line. Um, And then Xiao, which is... What's the difference there? It's six per line. Oh, it uh, can be a demo, a tool, or an application as opposed to a, a game. The first three categories are for games. And this has been a fairly successful, and this run class platform. Uh, I know Jim Gary has submitted to these in the past. Um, 48K RAM on the Amigos Discord is actually usually one of the judges on this. So if you submit a game, he'll probably be checking it out. It happens to be some of the ones he gets a chance to try. So anyway, the deadline for submissions is Saturday, March the 16th of this year, and the awards ceremony is on April the 6th, and uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. If you're a basic programmer, I know a lot of people kind of go, you know, basics more their bag, and they just, you know, aren't going to learn assembly because it's too complex or whatever. If you want to show off your basic skills, it's a great little contest, and it's not that big of a program you have to write either, so. And, you know, the various categories, depending on the max line length. Details you can find, of course, by clicking the link in our Discord show notes. <clears throat> EJ, uh jack I should say, excuse me, has uploaded a another update to VCC. So 2.1.8.3. So he's added a few things to this one here. And I he actually got the notes on his GitHub, which, of course, you can go straight to download here. Um, but the entire user's guide has been kind of rewritten and there's a web link built into the menu in the VCC emulator itself. So if you don't remember where to go to find it, you can just click that and bang, you go off and you, you can read the full online manual, basically. He's got corrected ROMs for HDB, DOS, LBA, and instructions for using Super IDE, which is kind of, I think Cloud9 did the Super IDE and that was based on the Glenside IDE. So that's for interfacing, you know, IDE hard drives, et cetera. Um, he added disk config for disabling the real-time clock. Why would you ever want to do that? Um, he added instruction to code to the debugger process window, added a disassembler window, uh, command line auto-paste, he fixed a long-standing bug for blinking text on the 40 and 80 column screens for the Cocoa 3, and the user guide has been substantially updated, so... Uh, Thanks, EJ, for continuing on with this project here. I know you're not the original author, but it kind of got dropped and you kind of picked it up and you fixed a lot of bugs and added a lot of features, including the debugger and stuff here the last couple of years. Please keep up the great work. Okay, next up, uh, an update on a rival project to uh, (laughs) Fredericks for building a a 609 homebrew. Um, He's actually gotten to the point now where he's loading floppy disk images from the SD interface on his. Um, he says he's using mostly unchanged code from the uh, z MBC2 project. I I'm not familiar with that. Maybe Frederick is. Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, originally, that one was written by Fabio De Fabis. Yeah, I have one. one. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so yeah, he's he's progressing. He also made a simple program in CMock, which of course is a uh, C-like, not entirely pristine C, but C-like language that uh, has been used for multiple Cocoa projects and is capable of creating a sub language. Uh, runnable binary files for both os9 and for regular disk basic and that is another project that gets updated fairly regularly too so cool to see he's got that working here and that uh, goes into a bit of a description of that now he kind of blogs these updates here um I think he's on hackaday too if I remember correctly do you yes. you do a hackaday as well or are you just doing the YouTube thing Frederick
9: just YouTube for now okay
11: we have a GitHub Etc for it later on or yes I do Okay, cool. Next up, and this is uh, for David Ladd. I specifically put this one in here. Um, David, first of all, are you still active on Facebook at all or no?
6: Not very often.
11: Because there's uh, David Graham. who I've, He's one of the guys that actually helped with some of the MM1 manufacturing, wasn't he?
6: I'm not 100% sure on that one. Okay.
14: Okay. So.
11: But he put up a readme here. So it's basically talking about MM1 schematics. And I've actually loaded the PDF here. You can go download it from the MM1 group and, and Facebook if you want. But uh, about schematics. So there's some schematics that were gotten from the original manufacturers, from IMS, et cetera, for the MM1. And what David has gone through in here is mentioning is some of the differences between what's on the schematics and what they really sold as manufactured hardware. Um, he said the CPU board schematics, in particular, do not represent a perfect match to any known board released to the public. The VSC chip used in this set is the 470B, which was a development version of the chip, which was never widely released. The pinout is different from the final release version, which has four less pins. While much of the information is applicable to the version 1.1 plus CPU board, some of it is clearly not The sound header, for example, is identified as P3 later used to ID the front panel reset button connector. These files are also pretty fuzzy, making them quite difficult to read at times. And then it goes through uh, some more descriptions of what's different or corrections that are needed, you know, going through the different versions of the IO board, etc. So it sounds like he's gone through fairly extensively and figured out what out of the publicly available schematics is right, what is wrong, and eventually, you know, is going to try to make a fixed up version that actually reflects the hardware as it was sold. Now, David, have you been doing anything based on the schematics here that you've hit this problem too, where the schematics just don't match the actual hardware? Or have you done much of this yet?
6: Um, no, the only thing I've ever had to do to my MM1 was replace the Dallas real-time clock module because it's one of those 1287-style uh, uh, chips where, you know, the battery and everything is built. Yeah, and uh, um. For some reason, the MM1 didn't want to boot once that went dead, so I had to buy a new one. Um, Then I had to use a PC to initialize the chip. Then I had to then stick it in the MM1, and then after that, it was fine. Um, But that was back when I had a working hard drive. At the moment, um, I don't have a working hard drive in my MM1, but... I eventually plan on, you know, getting one of my um SCSI to SD boards working in my MM1. It's just you know, have I you like considered
11: the enough. blue SCSI? Because Joel Evie got one of those from uh Joel's computer museum and actually has already got it up and running. He backed up his entire SCSI drive from his original mm one which is flaky. Uh backed it up on there and it's running perfectly fine.
6: Yeah, well, my hard drive is long gone. Um Though I used a ZIP 250 to make a, um, when the hard drive was working, I made a backup back then. Um, and then, of course, I used a Linux machine to then make a DD image of it. Um, but I plan on using that with how the SESI to SD works. Um, I okay.
11: Cuz it sounds like Joe Joe's quite quite pleased with the uh the Blue Scuzzy and his like it, it runs faster obviously. Um yeah. he backed up they, his entire drive including the the boots and everything else and he's totally booting off the hard drive now.
6: Yeah. I want yeah, to point out and, and strangely enough the Blue Scuzzy from what I was looking at uses the exact same development board that the first release of the Grease Weasel used, the Blue Pill.
0: <laughs> oh okay. Oh, no. So I got to find one of them for my Delmar.
6: So yeah, and and, and 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 you probably should use that that blinky test uh, firmware from the Grease Weasel project to test and make sure that the microcontroller is fake. One. <laughs> so. I,
0: I also noticed on this document just earlier in this page it says if you do this the cable will melt from the CPU out. That's a good thing to know. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had that issue with SCSI cables. I had a a from I bought a cable that was I can't remember. had a manufacturing <laughs> defect. And when I hooked up the drives and turned them on, the voltage went someplace it wasn't supposed to, and uh-huh. you could smell burning wiring. We'll uh, mount the cable from the CPU board out. An impressive
0: effect but undesirable. I must agree. <laughs> <Yeah>.
11: <laughs> That's in a quote, right, from the <laughs> document too, yeah. <laughs> Once again, this is why I stick with software, not hardware. (laughs) Anyway, for any of you M1 owners out there, then I would definitely go check this document because it will warn you about stuff like that. Now, Henry unfortunately had to leave here, but he got his next one. He's kind of writing a brand new ROM for the Coco 2 that will become a fourth interpreter operating system, basically. And he's been doing the very level, low-level stuff. So in this particular episode here, um, which took quite a while to record, he basically gets the keyboard driver working properly tied to the screen driver with screen scrolling, etc. And And uh, I won't play here because it's an hour long, but if you want to see like the entire process and him thinking a lot of how to get everything to work and how to work things like shift keys and, um, you know, how to, how to convert things from ASCII to what the VDG wants to see as far as a character code goes, et cetera, how to read the keyboard matrix on the PIA, et cetera. It's, uh, it's very informational. If you want to do low-level driver type stuff, even if it's not fourth relay, because he hasn't got to the fourth part yet, this is actually really excellent stuff. I would pair this up with uh, Cocoa Town and what he's been doing with a lot of the graphics stuff too. The, the two of them combined here, you're learning a lot about how to program the Coco specifically, including the PIAs and the VDG and the SAM and everything else. So really, really well done series for both of them. Next up, a uh, YouTube channel called Bowling Holt, which I've never heard of before, uh, released a video called Reliving My 1991 10th Birthday with a Tandy DMP133, which is a printer, uh, which he got at the age of 10 to use with his Cocoa 2. Um, now, unfortunately, like he's got a Cocoa 3 now, and he picked up a Cocoa 2 recently on eBay. And he was going to go try to hook it up to the printer and try to relive his childhood of actually controlling this printer. It's one of the later ones that's still at a serial port from Tandy. Unfortunately, he could not find his serial cable, so he ended up demoing it on a Tandy 1000 using DeskMate instead. Um, But he goes through a little bit of his history with the Coco 2 and 3 at the beginning of the video. I won't play it here, but if you guys want to check it out, you can get the show link from the show notes. Next up, um, I'm hoping maybe Frederick or somebody might be a bit more familiar with this too. So the 6502 show uh, is making a compact flash uh, card drive file system for his HM68 computer, which is a 680X <laughs> type machine. But it should work with any 6502 or 6800, 01, 03, 02, 09, et base machine. It's basically compatible with all of them okay, for using compact. compact flash instead of the SD cards. Yeah,
9: compact, but that compact flash is pretty much pin-to-pin compatible to the bus. But that Cisco Systems
0: compact flash is more valuable than MER. It had some number in it. You had to, if you had a Cisco switch, you had to have that compact flash thing. So, how did it end up here?
2: <laughs> hmm.
11: Well, one thing he does mention during the video, and like I said, I won't play it here because it's 24 minutes long. Um, he does mention that he was originally planning on actually trying to port flex to this for the 6800 or the 6809. And then he said that was a bit too complicated. So then he used another one. I can't remember who made it. I didn't record in the notes here, but if you listen to the video, you'll be able to hear it. But uh, he used a very, very simple thing. that's basically almost raw sector based with a catalog track that points to what track each program's on. And if I understand it correctly, each track can only hold one program. It's very, very simple. He figured since you got a compact flash, you got 64 meg, you know, or whatever card on here, you don't really need to worry about space all that much. Okay. But he, he got it up and running, so it's uh, it's an interesting way of doing some very low-level stuff and getting a compact flash hooked up to pretty well any 6502 or 680X-based system, which is cool. Next up, Terra City Retro Programming. Did a couple of videos here uh, working on this Coca Ultimate game. Uh, the first one here, the long one, I won't play too much of it. <clears throat> but basically, he's trying to figure out how to line up the characters so that they fit space and he's actually drawn a a grid on the screen we used to do this in graph paper to design you know how characters would fit especially when you got characters in this case like his warrior and his his wizard are are different heights etc but putting the screen or putting the grid on the screen visually actually makes it quite easy to see is this actually moving the rate i want it to Is it going to end up, you know, on a nice even boundary when it gets to the far right side or going up and down or whatever type thing? And I've actually used this technique myself sometimes rather than trying to do it all in graph paper or math calculations to figure out what pixel lineup I'm trying to get to get it consistently going across the screen. I'll just draw the lines and then you can just see visually, oh, I need to shift the two pixels actually saved me some time. So I I thought it's pretty interesting. He stumbled across that same technique. And then uh, this one here, he's done some optimizations here. And now if you guys remember, I think it was last week a week before we played a little bit of his video and kind of showing it, he's using draw statements to both erase and draw the characters. Uh, with all the optimizations that he's done, it's actually running much, much faster and not blinking as much. So I thought I'd just play a little bit of that so you can see the speed improvement, if you remember what last week's was like. I mean, it still blinks a little bit, but it was going like literally a maybe a quarter of the speed last time.
0: Mm-hmm.
11: He's got a little auto follow, so the warrior's always the lead guy and the wizard kind of falls behind because he's, as you discovered, Middle Kingdom pretty weak and gets pummeled on all the time. So you got to kind of guard him in the back. Next up, uh Alan Huffman has done a blog entry post based on a game that Rick, I don't think, has released yet called Lights Out Puzzle. Now, if you guys uh, from the late 70s, early 80s, remember the old Simon game, the thing that looked like a big red, no, not Simon, uh, Merlin, looked like a big red telephone, chunky thing. It had a grid of three by three uh, lights on it that you'd press and they had certain different games built in. Well, this is based out on one of those games where basically if you press, it's almost like the game of life type thing, except just actually a game instead of a simulation. If you press any one of those things, it'll any light that is surrounding it that was on goes off and vice versa. And basically you're trying to turn all the lights on or turn all the lights off, depending on the game version, uh, based on what some values that they were set originally. And this is using a larger grid here is using a five by five. And there's various versions of this and very electronic games have done it. So Alan is going to try to kind of make that himself too, to see, figure out how to do it. You can see a screenshot here from Rick Adams version for the Kogel (laughs) three. And the nice thing about this is Alan went, as usually he does, he does a deep dive into the weeds here to figure out, you know, how did this whole game concept come out? So he's going back and looking at some, you know, sample stuff like the Tiger Electronics game that kind of did the same thing back in 95, going into the intricate details of how that worked. And then there's the Vulcan Electronics one here. Back to the 70s, here's the Merlin uh, one that that actually I've played this on. Same. And, uh, you know, he's talking about the different sizes of the Merlin did a three by three grid, for example. The Cocoa One is doing a five by five. So he's going to try to implement this in color basic, uh, not extended basic. So I'm assuming he's going to try to do a low res version capable of running on the Cocoa One and two as well. So interesting to see where he goes with that. And also, I didn't know Rick was even working on this as a basic program. The last one I saw him do was uh, Cocodal or the Wordle clone. So it means another one I have to port to tonight. <laughs> Speaking of Porting Nitrous 9 So um, if you guys remember Or if you guys were on Facebook last week Or last couple of weeks uh, Some people, I think it was Carlos Camacho Initially posted about it, but the BBC Micro had done a, a ray tracing demo With reflections and everything else And Carlos had mentioned, oh, we should do this On the Coco, and uh, Alan had actually done A blog post last week uh, Trying to get it run his first pass it didn't work Because the BBC Micro Basics a little bit different Especially with doing logarithmic functions uh, Stephen Goodwin and the Dragon Group, on the other hand, actually got it basically done. Though his uh, dithering here, you, he was kind of confused; like it kind of got corrupted on this one ball. He did figure out later, though, what was wrong, and he fixed it. So you can see the fixed one there. But you can see he's actually done it both with you know, the crosshatch technique of giving, you know, giving shading versus pure four colors. And he's doing this in P mode three, so it's one twenty-eight by one ninety-two. He even did a low-res version, sixty-four by thirty-two, for the text, you know, semi graphics four screen and uh, has converted over. And he actually posted the source code for me, and when I get you know done with my rush season at work here in a few weeks, I'm going to take a stab at reporting it to Baseco 9 and just see how much of a speed difference, because these things take hours and hours to run. So I would not recommend doing it on real hardware unless you're really, really bored. Um, it makes our news segments look short. Um, but basically, if you overclock it on, a, on an emulator, you can actually get the results fairly quick. And I know people have done these before, like Von Cato wrote a few back in the late 80s for the Google 3. But he would just save them as high-res images once they're done because you don't want to sit there for you know, hours or days doing it. There's a Ray Trace uh, bouncing ball demo on the uh, Nitrous 90s of use that actually has nine frames of animation that it was pre-rendered, but it took days to do that too. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Julian Brown has got an update. So he's one who's kind of doing a Cocoa VGA-style thing uh, for the Dragon, which is a, basically an FPGA board to replace the 6847. Uh, the initial thing is to get it running properly, but maybe expanding what kind of outputs can go to, so you're not restricted to composite or RF. Uh, but to do more modern interfaces, and then of course to do the same thing that Brendan did with the COGUVGA VGA is to add extra functionality, you know, a wider palette, redefinable character sets, etc. I don't know if he's going to go as far as uh, Brendan did with the 64 by 32 text screen with true upper and lowercase, which is actually one of the my favorite features of the Kogo VGA, but. Uh, Definitely nothing stopping him, but he got his uh first run of boards here to try, and he's been actually doing a couple updates on soldering all the chips and stuff on there. You hardware guys have way more patience than me, that's all I can say. <laughs> uh, next up, uh, Kieran, I don't know if he's still awakened in the chat here, but uh, he released a couple of upgrades to Xroar. Um, so we originally posted the uh, XR 1.5 where he fixed a bunch of gimme problems and a bunch of other things too uh but then he had two bug fixes that were released this week so 151 included a cartridge database mostly to handle the Coco 332k ones because they have to do that 16k ROM flip to be backwards compatible so you know what's early in the ROM actually shows up later in the actual ROM type thing he fixed a potential crash when cartridge loading fails. And he recognized Windows uh, drive letter colon as paths because, of course, he's a Linux guy usually. And he didn't have anything in there. And actually didn't run properly in Windows. And then 1.52, with the help with Tim Linder, he did some gimme timer interrupt fixes. I think he had some issues with certain programs that were using very tight timing requirements off the gimme programmable interrupt timer uh, that were not operating correctly. So that should be fixed now, too. Um, if he's still in the chat, he can comment more on this. So I haven't had a chance to guy, try
8: Yeah. I submitted another bug request for him just last night here. Uh,
9: my latest game doesn't work in it. So I think it's something to do with it not being able to support the um, 128 by
10: 200. Oh, some of the odder resolutions? Yeah, I think it's – I'm not sure. <clears throat> but anyway, there is still another bug there, and uh, I submitted it to him last night.
11: Okay. Well, he's obviously no, fairly quick in doing this because like we released two updates here in seven days. Yeah. So. There'll be another one soon. He's probably working on it right now. That's why he's not answering the chat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's
2: right.
11: (laughs) And the final one here, um, this is a German uh, YouTube channel, and it's called Home for Obsolete Technology. And he picked up a huge retro haul. This is part two. So he's had another episode with completely different stuff in it. And he's got a ton of electronics. He's got, like, vacuum tubes and old transistors from the 50s and 60s and this all kinds of stuff from an estate sale. But he also picked up four dragons in it. And in Germany, the dragon was pretty rare from what he's saying in the, in the video here. Um, and one of them is fairly heavily modded. So I thought I would play the little clip about the dragons here, and you guys can see the modded one. Now, he does kind of explain what he thinks it is. And from looking at it, I, I agree
13: with him. But um, I was just wondering if Karen has seen anything like that. ...about what uh, the good friend of me actually got, because he was also very lucky. And yeah. One of those things is right in front of me, this one, this most of you might not know what that is, which is definitely not surprising. This is a Dragon 32, which is a computer manufactured in the, in Wales, in the early 80s, if I remember it correctly. Those are very, very rare and yeah, finding one in Germany is like winning the lottery, basically. And what can I say? We found just four of them. This... I'm not lying. I will <laughs> wow. show you a photo. Sadly, there is no enough space to show all four of them, but I will make a photo showing all four. And this is just unbelievable rare. This is one of them. And... Then this is another one. This is in a little bit worse shape. But we can actually see he used this one. He added this power supply or just for 5 volts and ground. I think they are for into the device. Maybe this is to power the whole thing because the Dragon uses a very weird power supply with a very weird connection. Or maybe this is just to power the this additional board here. And most of the stuff is down here. And we are fairly sure he made this circuit board by himself. And as you see there are two switches. One says off and on. And one says load and run. And we are fairly sure he used this to program ROMs on it. And write it onto the chips. But uh, that's not everything. We also... Anyway,
11: that was a pretty interesting. So the guy made a, a essentially an e programmer, from
13: what I can tell,
11: and, and built it to mount right on top of the Dragon case, <laughs> which is not something you see very often. Um,
14: yeah, I was kind of... Um, I kind of thought that the Dragon 32 was actually quite common in Germany back when it came out, because I know they sold them in Germany.
11: Yeah, they sold Cocoa 1s and 2s there, too. Like, I have heard some other... you know, We've actually got some people that watch the show that are from Germany that... Uh, had them. So I don't know. Maybe like from what I understood from talking to some of the people in Germany, is that there were certain cities that sold them. And if you lived outside of those major metropolitan centers, you never saw them in a computer store. So maybe like if he's in a you know a, a rural area or a you know smaller town, he may not he may not have ever seen them there. I don't know.
8: Well judging on this guy's hands, he looks like he's fairly young. Yeah. Well But anyway, yeah, that was, it was pretty interesting
11: that you know he's 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 very rarely seen when he gets four, and then one's like heavily modded with a satellite board on the outside of the case with a knee prom burner. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was kind of
0: weird. Well, we know he's inexperienced, he's still using a wet sponge for a soldering iron, so <laughs> you better
11: go
6: leave him a comment there, Rick. <laughs> you leave my sponges alone.
0: <laughs> oh, must be bled-o. must be
11: Sorry. Right, good that's There's... the news for this week sponge cake's good I'll say that doesn't work with the soldering iron though I'd be too busy eating I wouldn't even care about the soldering iron that's hardware
4: Ugh. all right is that it for today
11: I think so huh? how did we do in time there do we make it under your deadline
4: yeah I get uh,
1: 10 minutes Okay, well, let's go for another okay. 20 then. All
11: right. Mm, no but Before before <laughs> we sign off, I just want to get an update because obviously Coconut Bob did start working on something because he's got it on his screen there. So just a quick, uh, what are you working on there, Bob?
5: So, yeah, I actually got uh, my parts from Digikey showed up while we we're on the air here. But oh, cool. uh, this, this board is something that somebody gave me at the uh, meetup last weekend. If you go to that website, you can see Uh, he's also got a link to a GitHub page on this board. This is like a universal USB to any given matrix-style keyboard. He's got different ways to route these headers to match up to whatever machine you want to use it on, including a color computer. I was not aware of this. That uh, actually sounds cool. Interesting. Yeah, so you can look up this website here. It's uh, i... I like I can it it discovery.info
11: discovery. dot looks like yeah, yeah. Okay. slash it's retro,
6: retro KBD. kbd
5: yeah he's got a few interesting projects on there including a he's built his own coco two uh, motherboard so some interesting he's
11: those are becoming as common as you know
5: yeah right. pepsi <laughs> who, who hasn't made their own sixty eight oh nine board now <laughs> <laughs> well the coco three ones are a bit rare I have to say. Yeah. Right. But, but yeah, I got. I just got the parts for this, including that little uh, SoIC. So I'm going to try my hand at soldering this all together, and maybe next week I'll have a USB keyboard uh, interface.
11: Basically. Can going to live stream it this time, or going to do a after the fact recording, or. Anything? Um,
5: I will at least record it, and I don't know. Maybe I'll play the video and live stream that. Uh, so I see it needs a bunch of chips. Yeah, just a couple of uh uh four oh five ones and a four oh six six and then that SMT's not that it. bad. You'll live. Yeah. That's that one's like the half millimeter. I wouldn't uh, At least uh, no, it's not uh that's the main you know, one is the A V R one twenty eight chip.
4: Looks like it has that's a decent pitch stuff. you
5: can work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've done some half millimeter pitch. I can, I can handle that. I think just do a drag soldering.
11: All right. Cool. Yeah, I definitely am interested in, interested in this. There, you can actually adapt keyboards to the Coco. So, uh, Nick, I just want to mention uh, Sixty in the chat mentioned, and uh, Nick, some messages waiting for you on Discord about that, referring to the bug in the graphics oh, yeah. mode.
10: Yeah, I haven't had a chance to look yet.
4: Okay. Okay. Ready ready for the outro?
8: Yeah. I think so. Hop on by Ron's Garage and see if there's anything that interests you.
11: Actually, we should do a Ron's Garage segment next week since we don't have a guest.
8: I'll have some kind of uh, content for you.
3: Okay. This concludes another episode of The Coco
7: Nation, the world's leading live interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things The Coco Nation, visit us on the web at TheCocoNation.com. We'd love to hear from you.
11: Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to show at TheCocoNation.com the coco nation show would not exist
3: without the community and its cast and crew the coco nation theme song copyright 2022 d bruce moore Mixed, mastered and produced by d bruce moore the coco nation is over join us on the coco discord server
2: coco forever About okay nine.
4: um till next week
11: yeah actually i got one brief announcement we're planning on doing a follow-up on the deluxe cocoa, not next week but the week after um you know some of the things we've discovered et cetera. and uh i'm not sure exactly we're st- still working on stuff and brian's still trying to get it running stably et cetera. but we'll have some updates so uh be there for that show that should be pretty interesting
4: Okay, and uh, Marco, any update or comments on the virtual Cocoa Fest coming up?
7: I have a couple of people that are interested, but I haven't gotten confirmation times when they want to do it. And uh, beyond that, uh, no Cocoa Tech stuff at the moment either.
2: Okay. All
4: right. Well. Bye. Okay, bye. bye. See you next everybody. week. Bye. Bye. Everybody. Everybody.